Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast, where we have a sound effect right at the start. Oh, that was a good one. Um, this is... Uh, we, we, <laughs> if you hear any noises in the background, it's because there are cats in the room. Yes. And, and this is about the time of day when the cats love to... Uh, we used to call it the rips. Yes. Some people call it the zoomies. Just that mm-hmm. phenomenon where pets decide to sprint around the house. They need to expend energy. Yeah. So that's they, the they noise like half in the background. Ago, so, yeah. um, however, the cats are not the star, although you know, well, they, they might insist. That's, so That's debatable. Uh, the stars are us. You get to hear us speak. The cats <laughs> don't have very uninteresting opinions on film. Very pedestrian. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, wow. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. I write for The Wrap. Uh, with me, as always, is my far more intelligent, talented, and successful uh, co-star. Please introduce yourself, William. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. I write for The Wrap. I write for The Film Verdict. I write uh, for Slash Film, but mostly I podcast. And I podcast for you. Thank you. Everybody for, for calls me, me or for the listeners? I, both. Right. And uh, <laughs> whoever, whoever happens to be listening right now, I, I do it for you. And uh, yeah, everybody calls me Bibbs, and uh, we got a little catching up to do. We missed last week. We did miss last week. Yeah. And uh, and um, I was on the radio last week. When mm. you're on the radio, uh, that's that's like four films a week minimum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I like to average around three if I can. Sure, sure. But we've done we've done two or three, but like we'll do more if we have to do additional yeah. assignments. And so yeah, you're well prepared. And uh, then add it out, add another week onto that, and we got a lot of catching up to do. So here's what we're reviewing on this week's episode of Critically Acclaimed, and we still missed a few things. Uh, a Haunting in Venice, the new Hercule Poirot film. Expendables. The four the is on- actually in the title. That's an on- yeah, that's not lead speak. It's in the title. Yeah. Uh, the uh, new Hulu sci-fi horror film, No One Will Save You. Uh, the luchador biopic Cassandro, uh, the, uh, the, the tale of the guys who, uh, uh, like manipulated the stock market to make GameStop more profitable, mm-hmm. dumb money, uh, a, is it a biopic a million miles away or is it's it a biopic? Like, it, yeah, okay. Jose Hernandez, a, real, okay. real person. Uh, and then, uh, a quasi horror biopic, uh, from, uh, uh, the director of Jackie, uh, and Spencer called El Conda. Uh, and then uh, there's a new indie called Rotting in Venice. And I... Rotting in the Sun. <laughs> Haunting in Venice, Rotting in the Sun. I just clearly There's, there's not a film called Rotting in Venice. You know, there was... there's a film called Death in Venice, which I kept calling a Haunting in Venice, and now mm-hmm. we're all confused. So. You know, there was, uh, uh, there was also a Poirot film called Evil Under the Sun. Oh god! So, uh, so yeah, all, we're we're all mixed up. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the and the original title of *A Haunting in Venice* was just *Halloween Party*. Just call yeah. it that. That would've been fun, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so anyway, that's a lot to catch up on, and we're gonna dive right in. And uh, I think the one to talk about first is *A Haunting in Venice*. Anyone? Yeah, anyone we can object? catch up on that one. Okay, *A Haunting in Venice* is the latest film uh, adapted from Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie is still the best-selling novelist of all time. Yeah. Yep. That's and, amazing. Uh, her, uh, the play, The Mousetrap. Mm-hmm. I think it. It's still it's, going. It's still going. It's still yeah. going after like de- decades and yeah. decades. There was this play she wrote. It was a murder mystery called The Mousetrap, and it was incredibly popular. And they wanted to turn it into a movie, but there was a clause in the contract that said you can't turn it into a movie until after the play is over, has run its course. It's been half a century. It's been fifty years. It's, still it's been going. running for fifty years. So they made I, they made a movie. They made a murder mystery movie about the play. Yes, that, that's as close as they. It was called uh, "See How They Run." And, yeah, which um, I wish was better than I, it was. It's such a cool. It's such a great idea. Agatha Christie's a character in it. it it's, it's got a great cast. Yeah, it's just and it's, as a murder the script mystery, isn't there. Yeah, it's just it's okay, just, unfortunately. But it's it's kind of neat if you're an Agatha Christie mm-hmm. fan. Um, 
But there have been quite a few Agatha Christie adaptations over mm. the years, uh, and Hercule Poirot has been in quite a few of them. Uh, oh, who who is uh, who played Poirot in the TV series that's just called Poirot? Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it was, I think it was on a B, on the BBC. No, no, no. Was... That's that that guy. That I I would know his name if you hadn't asked. Uh, Agatha Christie's Poirot, t- from 1989. Uh, David Suchet. David Suchet. Yeah, great actor. Um, I, he, Wonderful actor. David he Suchet. he's my Poirot. I, uh, I've only seen like an episode and a half of that TV okay. series, but I would pass by those VHS cassettes in the video store every day. It's like, oh, that's Poirot. Nobody else could be Poirot. Now, <laughs> so it wasn't until after that that I saw Sidney Lumet's Murder on the Orient Express sure. with Albert Finney's Poirot. Yeah, but. David Suchet is still my Poirot, <laughs> even though it came it's, after. It's like Doctor Who. There's yeah. so many different doctors that whoever you saw first usually is your doctor. Sometimes that's not strictly true. Mm. Maybe you fell in love with the show because of another doctor. Like, yeah. I saw uh, Paul McGann's TV movie. Yeah, that was... That was like, my first exposure yeah. to Doctor Who, and... It was it was good, but it, it was kind of like, fun. But like it, it didn't make me fall in love with it. Christopher Eccleston was my doctor. That, that's where yeah. I came in too. Yeah. And I, so. I watched through Matt Smith, and then I lost interest. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so quite a few actors who played Poirot over the years. David Suchet is probably the most popular. Uh, but Albert Finney was in Murder on the Orient Express. That original version, directed by Sidney Lumet, as far as I'm concerned, the gold standard for feature film whodunits. Yeah, it's got the best cast. It is gorgeously photographed. It all works like together. A drum. That's oh yeah, so unbelievable. And if written. you've never read the book, and if you've never seen either of the movies, the Branagh version is respectable. It's just Sidney Lumet's at the bar really high. Um, my favorite ending of any Who Done It ever. The actual solution to that <laughs> of, of is who so done it. damned good. Yeah, you just have to. You have to get, if you've never seen it before, you don't know what what happens. Don't let it. Do not let anyone spoil it for you. You just got to stand up and cheer. Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh my god, I wow. Think, uh, I like Brana's version, but Brana's version feels like a Broadway revival. It's like sure. you know the show already. Yeah. Um, because it's a whodunit, you you kind of go in knowing who done it. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, it, if if you're not a fan of Johnny Depp, he's the victim, so yeah. I can kind of uh, yeah. take a little bit of cruel glee and, in that, if you wish. And then his sequel, uh, Death in the Nile, had Army Hammer and uh, Russell Brand in it. Oh, that's so, right, Russell Brand was in it. Yeah, oh my god. Oof. Jesus. Uh, so here we are at A Haunting in Venice, the first one without a problematic leading man. That we um, know of. That we know of. Um, Fingers crossed. It was pointed out to me that uh, Tina Fey stars in this, and she eh. said some controversial things. But she's not an abuser, so I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give Tina Fey a pass on this one. Yeah, like, she, she, uh, it's, it, it compared, doesn't ruin the movie to have her in yeah, it, I think. She, she has yeah. committed no felonies, as far as I yeah. know. So, um... But yeah, here we are at Hunting in Venice. Mm-hmm. It's based on a Halloween party, the Agatha Christie novel. And this is takes place quite a few years after Death on the Nile. In fact, this one actually takes place after World War II. And so, yeah, he remade Murder on the Orient Express. Mm. He remade Death on the Nile. That was a film as well. Um, and it's a pretty good film. I actually kind of prefer Branagh's version because it's a little punchier. Like, it, that movie definitely has problems, but it's more sort of outwardly entertaining version of Death in the Nile. But the thing that was cool for me, this is, this is not going to be everyone's experience, for Haunting in Venice is that this was the first Branagh Poirot film 
where I hadn't read the book, uh-huh. I hadn't seen any previous adaptations. I, I, maybe Suchet did one. I don't know. Uh, but you didn't, you didn't know who done it. I didn't know who done it. Apparently, <coughs> after I saw the movie, I looked it up a little bit. They took huge liberties with the plot of this one. Yeah, like it's well, a massively different story. But regardless, mm-hmm. I went in not knowing the ending, which is kind of where you want to be with a who done it. Theoretically, yeah. it's it's, it's oh, yeah. better that way. You want to be an active observer. I've said before that uh, Brana works better when he has big budgets, and that's certainly true mm. of like his Shakespeare stuff. You sure. compare his Hamlet, which is gorgeous, mm. uh, uh, to his Love's Labor's Lost. Like his Love's Labor's Lost, which where he clearly great. had a really small budget. He's shooting yeah. in a studio, and that it looks bad. Like he's just shooting yeah. it badly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, have you seen Artemis Fowl? He had a big budget. Oh on that yeah, one. that's that was terrible. terrible. So uh, I don't really blame him for that though. That feels this, like studio notes the movie. Yeah, I suppose so. This is him like comfortably with a small budget. And I was yeah. reminded very much of his film Dead Again. Yes. Which is an excellent, so. uh, the, yeah. one of the better thrillers really of the 90s. It's really yeah. fantastic. It, probably his most underrated film, not because anyone dislikes it, but just because nobody talks about it. Mm. That movie should have a Criterion edition. It's it really should. It should be rescued. Um, yeah. So uh, he's working with a small budget. He found like one really interesting location and he mm-hmm. stays in it the entire movie, almost yeah. the entire movie. Uh, and he mm. gets... The cel- he gets a pretty good raft of celebrities. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not quite the like distracting who's who mm-hmm. that murder and death on the Nile are, which is why I'm I'm not as surprised that this isn't making as much money because that was kind of the gimmick. Look at the huge yeah. cast we've assembled. But he's, uh, he's got recognizable actors. No, he's got good he's, actors yeah. here. He's he's got uh, Michelle Yeoh. Uh, first of all, Mich- recent Oscar winner Michelle mm-hmm. Yeoh killing it in this movie. She's great. He's got the entire main family from Belfast. Yeah, he's, uh, got, he's got the dad Jamie Dornan. He's got the mom Kelly Riley, and then the kid is uh, well, Jude Kel- Hill. Kelly Riley wasn't the mom in Belfast. Wasn't she? No, she was the uh, she was Mrs. Sherlock Holmes in those recent Sherlock Holmes movies. Kelly Riley's been around. She has a quite a prestigious career. Who was the but, mom in Belfast? Uh, it, it, uh, she had she, an Irish actress. Kelly Riley's British. No, no, it's fine. I just a, I, <laughs> who was the mom in Belfast? I'm gonna look this up. It's driving me nuts. Subban. Mm. I, I remember having trouble pronouncing Catrona Balfi. There you go. I probably pronounced it Catro- wrong. Yeah, Catronia Balfi. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which I'm sure I'm pronouncing incorrectly. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, well, that's embarrassing. I've been saying they got the cast back this whole time. No, Whoops. no. Yeah, Kelly Riley is in it, but uh, no, yeah. she, she wasn't the mom in Belfast. But the kid yeah. from Belfast and the dad from Belfast are in this. Yeah. Uh, along with some other um, actors you may recognize if you're familiar with like Brana's repertory players like right. he, he likes to go back to, to certain actors but it's not one of those ones where every single act character is a huge actor which something mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh has done and I think not having the stunt casting has enabled him to focus a little bit more on the story and the story is this um, it's after World War II Europe is kind of settling down a bit and Poirot has, retired. has officially retired and there's this cute bit at the beginning where he's just going about his day like he's going like he's shopping for like baked goods and things and he has one assistant a bodyguard whose whole responsibility is to prevent people from giving him mysteries people keep showing up hey <laughs> like someone life, killed all my cousins and he throws them off they're the literally sleeping on the sidewalk outside his door that's yeah and he comes home and they're like trying to chase him inside and that's really funny it's like here's the mystery it's not a mystery here's the answer please go away he's not yeah. even bother with that he's yeah. just like no fuck it I'm, I'm, he's totally out of the game and uh who comes to his door however but a uh, Agatha Christie-esque mystery author, mm. uh, played by Tina Fey. It turns out that years ago, uh, she followed him along on one of oh, his and many her cases. Her character's named, uh, what is it? It's, uh, mm. she has a really cool, her character has a really cool, it's like Ariadne. 
Ariadne Oliver. Ariadne Great Oliver. Name. Yeah. Great name. That's the Agatha Christie character. Uh, but yeah, she followed him along one of his cases and she based a character on him and it became kind of like an Ouroboros where like people mm. don't know, like, did you rip off Ariadne Oliver or did Ari- she yeah. steal from you? And, and Ariadne re- Oliver is a, an Agatha Christie creation. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, They've got a really wonderful rapport, uh, and she has uh, uh, she enlists him to help debunk a spiritualist. Uh, spiritualism was a really huge deal in, in the uh, turn of the century and then well, the first yeah, part of the early 19th 1900s. Century. Yeah, um, yeah. By the late forties, it wasn't quite as big a deal yeah, to debunk and, uh, these things. Houdini had been debunking them for yeah, decades. From what I understand, Houdini yeah. had been debunking spiritualists. Yeah. Uh, specifically because he was looking for the real deal. Yeah, exactly. Like he wanted to find a, a real working he wanted, spiritualist. He wanted to connect with his mother, and he, mm. he and he, he even said something like, you know, when I die, I if I, I arrange seances on this night yeah, every year, I'll whatever, like, if I can make noises, it, I will yeah. be there, you know? Because like, that's the whole I saw, thing. I saw a play that actually uh, yeah. was a, a Houdini biography yeah and um it ended with uh him in the like he dies yeah and he's in the afterlife screaming to his wife who's <laughs> reaching out to him and she just can't hear him oh it's tragic so, yeah that's that kind of like a, a fun tragic uh, way there, to end the there, story. there's a place in los angeles and if you're in los angeles for in the industry you probably have heard of it but if you haven't it's called the magic castle and the magic well, ca- the magic castle. Uh, just in case people have it's, it's we talked about it on our percent. lord of illusions commentary track we did but that was a patreon exclusive so not everybody heard that um the Magic Castle is this really wonderful place in Los Angeles uh, where magicians, professional magicians, hang out and they practice their craft and they uh, they work together to build new acts and things. Uh, and it's you can go, but it's invite only. And you can go, you can get a nice meal, and you can do. There's a bunch of close-up magic, and they have various shows every night. Uh, it's really, 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 really wonderful. And they had. I assume it's still going, like a seance room where they would talk about the history of seances and yeah. they would like do some seance stuff. And I won't yeah. ruin it for anybody if you can go, well, but it was really fun. And if you know anything about magicians, yeah. none of them believe in spiritualism. No, you, it's all a trick for them. So, well, yeah. uh, but and but uh, you know, spiritualism was a it was a big in, it was a big industry. It was an industry where a lot of women could thrive. It was mm. in a time when there weren't a lot of industries where that could happen. Um, and so uh, there's were they, a, were they scam artists? Yeah. Pretty much to a one, yeah. But a lot of them were brilliant scam artists. And if you actually yeah, I, look no, at... I, I admire every oh, yeah. everything that a spiritualist does. When you look at uh, like the spirit yeah. photography that they did and the incredible elaborate cons that they did, it's genuinely impressive mm. the lengths that they went to to sell their show. Um, so anyway, uh, Ariadne Oliver goes to Poirot and says, I found a spiritualist who is so good I can't figure out how to debunk them. If you can't debunk them, then they must be the real thing. So come with me to this Halloween party hmm. where they're going to do a seance. And the they go to this Halloween party. It's at this, like, really old building that used to be a hospital. And there's this really tragic story about no. children who died in it. Mm-hmm. And there are and legends about how they come back to life. And, yeah, yeah. And so the, the children like, creepy, giggling children everywhere. Yeah, and they come back to life and they, like, they kill doctors. That's what they're looking for because the doctors failed them. Very spooky stuff. Um, and, uh, it's owned by a opera singer, uh, played by Kelly Riley, uh, whose daughter had died one year ago and she wants to do a seance to try to reach her. She's still overwrought with grief. 
uh, along the <coughs> way, bless you, uh, there's the family doctor, played by Jamie Dornan. He has, like, a so creepy some... son, played by uh, the, the Jude Hill. Jude yeah. Hill. Uh, and Jamie Dornan's, like, he's at this party, but he's ha- has, like, some sort of social trauma. Like oh, he's he PTSD from PT- the war. That's right. Yeah, he's PTSD from the war, and so he's still really struggling with it. Um, and then uh, and then who was the spiritualist? Michelle Yeoh. Awesome. And I'm not going to get it. Obviously, it's a whodunit, so I don't want to reveal too much. Uh, what I will say is this. There is a seance. Uh, things happen. And before long, one of the prominent characters we've mentioned mm-hmm. is dead in a very dramatic fashion. And now everyone is trapped in the house. Uh, Perot has locked everyone in. There's a hurricane or something outside, so <laughs> it's like just they a, can't it's get a out. rainstorm. It's flood because it's Venice. It's, so it's all flooding. Canals, so everything's flooding. Yeah, yeah. So they're so they're trapped in there overnight. People are dead. More people will die over the course of the evening. And on top of it all, Poirot has begun seeing ghosts. Actual <laughs> ghosts, like giggling children in the hallways, reflections and stuff, in the mirror, yeah. stuff he cannot explain. Will this be the moment when the master logician comes Me- to re- the supernatural. meets the supernatural and and actually comes to terms with that? Um, I won't say where the movie lands on that. I will say this: um, if you can predict where the movie lands on that, a lot of the movie falls into place very very quickly. Like, a lot of the uh, solutions to a lot of the mysteries are basically like, oh, well, then this yeah, is like, probably this, and this is this. Yeah. And I was a little frustrated by how, considering that a lot of this was, like, original and, like, not Agatha Christie's plot, mm. I was a little frustrated by how far ahead of this movie I was in terms of uh, the who okay. I guessed it pretty I, uh, quickly. I, the, whole, I was, the whole scheme. I really. wasn't sure, and even if I can guess, it's all yeah. a matter of, like, presenting how well it locks into place. Like, True. watching Brana's Murder on the Orient Express, I knew yeah. all these characters were. I knew how it was going to end. I knew well, who, who was going to kill, who... Who was killed and who done it? But, that's um, true. That's right. I knew uh, that then too. But if but you it, don't know, still I, I want to be engaged. Yeah. I want to be. I want to be. Um, I want to be toyed with. You know. But what I what I appreciate about this film, I think this is might be the best of the three. Of I, th- I, I agree. Movies. I agree. Um, because he's actually like really like he tends to do sometimes, swinging really hard with style. Mm-hmm. Brana is best when he gets to be just sort of big and theatrical. He always plays the lead character. He's mm-hmm. actually brought a little bit of. Uh, pathos and unsureness to Poirot that we haven't seen from the previous movies. Mm-hmm. Usually he's very assured. Uh, here he's like really off balance because he's actually facing the supernatural perhaps and he doesn't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he even says at the beginning, it's like there are no spirits, there are no gods, there's just us and we're miserable. Like he's <laughs> gonna just this really bitter character and now he's facing the possibility that there might be the supernatural in his life. Um, I... I appreciated just the images he gives us. There's yeah. this really creepy image when the, the medium first arrives, the Michelle Yeoh character. Uh, they have those um, Italian theater masks. It's not Commedia dell'arte, but it's like sort of mm. traditional mask masks. Uh, and yeah, there's a sort of like pale white mask with a big black tear and a big black cloak, like very eyes wide mm-hmm. shut, floating in a gondola down the canal. Yeah. Like kind of like very uh, eerie, yeah. swinging uh, lanterns and long shadows. And there's uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, jack-o'-lanterns. It feels very Halloween-y. Yeah. And he just loves that. Yeah. Uh, and I do love that he wrote in a lot, because Brana wrote this as well. He wrote uh, no, in- he didn't. Oh, he didn't write this one. No, no, this oh, is uh, right. this uh, Michael Green. I was on uh, sorry, uh, my, my misapprehension. There. Michael Green has been the screenwriter. I, I might, I think he might have been the sole screenwriter on all of these. Uh, Michael Green is uh, right. has an interesting career because, in addition to writing all of these like Poirot movies, uh, he also wrote like really big blockbustery stuff like Alien Covenant and Logan. 
Oh, wow. Uh, he got okay. Oscar nominated for Logan. He's, he's right. guy. But then again, he also wrote, like, Green Lantern. Like you Jungle know? Cruise. Yeah, um, so, like, you know, like, it's he's just got this big Hollywood career. All right. But I, he's got a pretty good knack for these Christie all movies, right. for the most part. I'll give him that. Yeah, well... Uh, that said, then yeah, uh, Bron is okay. Bron is not but writing regardless, it, but he put the line in the movie. Yeah. He, he he put the there's a line in the movie. Um, I even forgot what I was gonna get out now. Uh, um, it was the supernatural spookiness. Brana loves Halloween. Uh, oh, uh, the the line of dialogue was uh, Tina Fey's uh, uh, the the Ariadne character. She says, um, "This is I know this is Italy, but uh, ever ever since the war, we've been taking a lot of American traditions, and Halloween is one of them." Yeah. So the fact that this is Halloween is kind of novel, and I like that approach as mm-hmm. well. That this is like people just discovering Halloween for the first time. So when yeah. they're scared by Halloween images, yeah. it has that just that little extra impact. Uh, this is... I, I We brought up Dead Again at the beginning. I think this is Brenna's most atmospheric film since Dead Again. Yeah. And it's in, in that, especially in that very gothic-y kind of way. This well, is Brenna's... I'm a fan of his Frankenstein as well, but, you know, that's, I, I'm the only one. I, I know a lot of people... I love parts of that movie. All right. I think De Niro gives one of the great... Frankenstein performances. Yeah. It's like him and Karloff and like no one else has come <laughs> close. I think De Niro is amazing in that film. I don't think it all comes together. But um, he's making an old Dark House movie. He's making like a James Whale film. Yeah. And he is presenting us with kind of extreme imagery. Like it, it, uh, very like fisheye kind of close-ups and mm-hmm. like uh, bizarre angles that leave a lot of negative shadowy space around people. Like it's a movie that is... It feels like lower budgeted in a lot of ways than his other stuff, but it feels like they made that work for them by just trying to emphasize the creepiness of a small enclosed space mm. and how out of sorts everybody is within it. I this is actually one of my favorite shot films of the year. I just really, really <laughs> just like, like yeah. I got I got totally swept up in the imagery of this. Yeah, and they, I think they, overall the character work and the drama is just really quite effective mm. in general. Uh it, it's edited really chaotically, but I think mm. that's by design. It um, works. I, I remember uh, complaining about Death and Death the Nile, yeah. how uh, that was edited in such a way where you could tell they were sort of... I don't think it was actually shot during lockdowns, but it feels like it was, because mm-hmm. there were a lot of like really close angles, a lot of low angles. There mm-hmm. weren't big, wide shots of a lot of people in a room together. And a lot of like um, the big... like sort Because of, one of the cool things about some of the, uh, uh, some of the older Poirot films was that they were kind of travelogue movies. Mm-hmm. You know, here's this beautiful chalet on the, Ita- mm-hmm. on, on the Mediterranean, or we're gonna, there's, this one's over at literally a death at the pyramids, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, death on the Nile, Brenna's version, a lot of it feels very fakey. Yeah, like, like a lot of, a lot of the like, cities were like CGI. Like, like there are definite it, shots t- that look t- great, but t- mostly t- yeah, it looks get, cheap. Get at least one good helicopter shot of the actual Nile. Yeah. And, and we're good. And try to get the entire cast in the shot, like on the boat, like yeah. looking out. Like, get, get, wow us. Remember, you there know? was even a shot in Murder on the Orient Express, because yeah. he has this huge, impressive cast oh, in that one. Cast that and one. he has, a, like, you know, the accusing parlor scene uh, where he has everybody together and he's going to like sort uh, of lay out what the mystery was. And they're all sitting at this big long table like it, they're at the Last Supper. And he frames and, it like the Last and Supper. And he frames he it like the Last, last Supper. Shot. I think they even pose like in the Last yeah. Supper. It's pretty corny, but... Uh, it works though. But you have all of the cast in one shot. It's like, yeah. great, do that. That's More. What want. I want to see them yeah. all together. But Haunting in Venice, again, the, stu- the casting isn't a stunt heavy. It's just a yeah. good cast. So you don't really need that. What you need is you can't rely on that gimmick. 
you need to sell the story. Yeah. And he sells the story, for the most part, incredibly well. And I really admire this film. And he's really good, and Brado's always been pretty good about yeah. giving even the smallest characters at least, like, a moment. Oh, yeah. Something something to say or do, a motivation, so we actually get which, to know who they are. Which is, and, and, it's, and, the, and a whodunit's actually really, really great for that, because mm-hmm. so much of it is about... Interviewing people, giving people, a, yeah, giving yeah. people a small monologue. Everyone gets a little bit of backstory. Everyone has some reason why they might have wanted to kill someone, and that's inherently dramatic. Um, it, it's just a very, very satisfying movie. And even though I, I can bristle a little bit because I thought the overall, a lot of the clues to the actual mystery were kind of like, just like, oh, there's this silver platter. Could I have the thank you kenneth Branagh. i see there's a clue here here and here well that kind of wraps it all up um not everybody's going to pay that close attention yeah i, I have this uh, i wrote about this a little bit at slash film but um there's an expression some people say where they want to like just enjoy a movie they say just turn off your brain and enjoy the movie oh. which is which is nonsense just turn, in general turn off my brain what am i dead yeah yeah exactly it's it's what they're describing and I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt here. What they're describing is an attempt to disassociate, to just let what's happening on screen happen mm. and to forget the cares of the day. And I can sympathize with that. I can appreciate that level of just wanting to relax and mm. movies might be your means by of doing that. However, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing the movies a disservice because a lot of movies, I would argue all, mm. but certainly whodunits, benefit from active viewing engagement yeah, a um, purpose of the purpose the, uh, of this movie is not to just relax and let poirot solve the mystery for you you're supposed to try mm-hmm. to outthink him it's a little game branna is playing well, also, it christie's playing it green is playing it the actors are trying to like guide you in certain directions maybe misdirect you but also play along so that when the mystery is is found everyone's performance makes sense mm-hmm. it's an elaborate trick and you're supposed to try to figure it out like Poirot debunking a spiritualist. Yeah, I, I would argue that the, the people who say just turn your brain off yeah. and forget the day, what better way mm. to forget the day than concentrate really hard yeah. on something else? Yeah. Uh, for, you know, 100 minutes, you get to really engage and mm. solve and unlock and try to figure things out the way Brana might. A really good whodunit will make you feel smart. Yeah. Even if you can't, whether you can or cannot figure it out, it'll make you feel smart. Well, I, because then I feel the like, filmmaker uh, like had some faith in you. Yeah. You know, like we, all, like we uh, all played in good faith, you know? I feel like A Death in Venice doesn't... Haunting in Venice. Or, see, I did it again. I know, right? Uh, haunting in, I feel like A Haunting in Venice uh, is less concerned with sort of that puzzle box, mm-hmm. with the actual mystery of it, than it is with filming and style and atmosphere. Well, Luckily... Yeah. Uh, it's got that the, the mystery is yeah. is strong enough, yeah, and the style is uh, engaging enough that mm-hmm. they complement each other yeah. rather than it being like one over the uh, other. Who done it can decide like what's more important to us: mm-hmm. the actual mystery itself or the entertainment value. You can try to balance them if you want, but you know, as long as you do one or the other, pretty good. I just don't want to be too far ahead of the Who Done It in an ideal scenario. Yeah. And granted, I, you know, I studied story structure, I love whodunits, I, I might be like, you know, I might not be like the perfect mark mm-hmm. for a movie like this to try to get one over on us, and I'm not bragging or anything, I'm actually saying this this was disappointing to me because it kind of, like, I wanted to enjoy the movie even more. But uh, overall, though, I, the, I mean, the movie plays fair, uh, I don't feel like there were, like, clues that were, like, 
not fair game to the audience, which has happened before and can be very frustrating. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think this is Kenneth Branagh's best Poirot film, easily. Even though I did like the other two, especially yeah. Murder on the Orient Express, I, which I, is I like Murder on the Orient Express quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, Death on the Nile, the last but yeah. it's a, it's a it's a enjoyable, watchable movie, but. Murder Experience is a classy production from top to bottom, but I, I think Haunting of Venice is the one. Haunting of Venice is the one where it feels like he's finally free to like make his own thing, free from this idea that I'm just restaging something that, that has been done a whole bunch of times, yeah. because it's a relatively less well-known Agatha Christie story, and he has uh, more of a clear canvas uh, on which to sort of paint his own legacy and yeah it's really really good if and you I've, miss it see it it's really good and I've, I've said in the past like if he wants to keep on making these things please wants to make like five six seven more I, i'm kind of okay with that i'm all okay I with ask, brana just keep on keeping on with the the, the agatha christie i've said it before i'll say it again all i ask of kenneth brown you can do anything else you want with your career all i ask is if you when you get to be age appropriate you have to direct yourself in king lear i i you have waiting to. with bated breath for come Brana's on king man lear. Jesus, you, you, you the, know, the, right? The, the problem is, Brana is like really live and healthy. Like, he doesn't have that frailness that Lear might. He's also an actor, I yeah. don't mind. Well, I know. But can you imagine, like, a really active, muscular King Lear? Because that's what we're going to get. Well, because one of the well, one of the plot points in King Lear is, like, does King Lear even need to retire? Like, that was the whole thing. People yeah. argued that in the first place, and then his deterioration might come more from the retirement than his actual need. Right, we're, we're off in the weeds. Uh, but anyway, Haunting in Venice, bada bang. <laughs> the next big, the next biggest uh, uh, release over the last two weeks uh, is also a sequel, also a sequel in a franchise that is about gimmick stunt casting, mm. uh, and it is a film called Expend Four Bulls. It's not called the Expendables, the Expendables no. Four. That's not what's on the the title. No, it's it's not what's on the poster. Four Bulls. Expend Four Bulls. Uh, it's the fourth film in the Expendables series. God help us. Uh, the selling point of the original the Expendables from mm-hmm. 2010 was that all of the, uh, or at least many of the mm. big, well-known action stars from the 1980s, mostly, mm-hmm. and then and into the 90s. Yeah. Uh, the stars of badass cinema, a very particular uh, subsect of action films, mm. uh, were going to be united in one film. So we yeah. have uh, Stallone and Schwarzenegger. Hadn't starred in movies before together. Uh, <laughs> although Schwarzenegger really only has a cameo in it. Uh, mm. Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis have a have cameos in the first Expendables. Mm. But the main cast is is nothing to sneeze at. Like, you got Stallone, you got Jet Li, which Jet is Lee pretty was, cool. Yeah, the other big star. You got Jason Statham, who was their, like, big get from the more, like, contemporary action he was, scene. He was the young blood. Yeah, yeah uh, at the time, anyway. Uh, Dolph Lundgren was Dolph Lundgren it, yeah. was a pretty good get. And uh, you got... Uh, and you also had, like, a couple of, like smaller action movie stars who, like, if you watch the straight-to-video realm, you're kind of like, oh, it's cool that, like, like Gary Daniels is Gary, in or, that. Or Randy Couture. Is yeah, that. Randy Couture's a you know, famous wrestler, but his action movie career not that big. Like, there was some pretty good gets, yeah, actually. And, uh, like, and what are they going to do? They're going to yeah. do bullshit. They're, Basically. They're, they're going to... They're, we're uh, not going uh, to write a masterpiece about this. It's just an excuse just every, for them to fight. Everybody, uh, you know, repeat together, they're a, a team of elite mercenaries that yep. do the war shit that the American military is too timid to do. Oh, that's right. Mickey Rourke was, in that, oh, right. Mickey well. Rourke was yeah. in that first one as well. Um, then they... Uh, that one... Did okay. Like, did it, 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 it did made, fine. No, it made a huge amount of money. Uh, 
Um, well, it didn't make the, a billion, but it did. It did. It the, did better than most of the action movies any of those guys yeah, were making had done. In you a long could time. tell that the bulk of the budget went to talent because sure. the filmmaking sucks. Yeah, and Stallone the writing did that first one. sucks. And he's not the a great action director. Bad. That's the thing uh, with Stallone. He's not a great action director. He's, he can't he's actually, be a great director. He's, actually, he's good with uh, his kinds of characters. He likes to play yeah. these sort of like lovable meathead characters yeah. and uh, the male bonding stuff. Mm. That felt like he really like he mm. liked that stuff but the actual action sequences in that movie were pretty unremarkable the only thing i will give credit for is like there, there's like a bit like at the end where like i'm trying to remember exactly how it goes down but i'm it's like it's jet Li and i and i think it, it was dolph lundgren it was jet Li and jet Li and one of the other action stars it took yeah. two of the biggest action stars in history to take down one gary daniels and, which and is to, correct they were they were, they, were they, they were pounding on him ceaselessly and he was still standing and then yeah. they set him on fire and it's still fighting <laughs> if you don't know who gary daniels is gary daniels is like this kickboxer who uh had a had a surprisingly prolific action movie career, almost exclusively in straight-to-video action movies. Uh, he is in some of my favorite low-budget action movies of all time. Blood Moon is amazing. Blood Moon is a classic. Blood Moon is one of the great cult films that doesn't actually have that big of a cult. Uh, he plays... Uh, it, it's a it's a Sons of the Lambs riff uh, where he plays a... Uh, forensic psychologist slash martial arts expert who is brought in to uh, stop a serial killer and the serial killer's modus operandi is he kills all of the greatest martial artists in the world using their own styles against them all the greatest martial arts artists in the world live in the same town by the way and uh, he also is a cyborg he has cyborg fingers that he will punch through your chest in his final killing move why that's in there I no one knows uh, there's no justification for it but all here, the fights are amazing here, here's what you need to, to really take away from this conversation you should watch Blood Moon yes instead of any of the Expendables any movies. of them I, I, uh, I'm rather fond of the Expendables 2 I think it's easily the best one it's the best Simon West directed that one yeah, he's and a, Simon he's West a, is a little bit like knowledgeable action director he's a very efficient action director mm. and he know. I think he got the tone right because mm. I, I couldn't tell you what the plot of that movie was if you put a gun to my head all I know is that Jean-Claude Van Damme played the villain and his last name was Villan nice yeah, and, uh, I uh, think there was uh, a cameo from Chuck Norris in that yeah, one which is very uh, over the top and ridiculous uh, there was um oh um Scott Atkins, I think, was in that one as well. Yeah. And it had the best overall cast. Schwarzenegger actually did stuff. Not a lot, yeah, well, but a that, little bit. That was a criticism, is that yeah. you know Bruce Willis and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger like only cameoed in the first one, and they were clearly shot on blue screen, so they yeah, weren't in the same room with Stallone. Yeah, which is and, um, not as fun. And then yeah. in, in The Expendables 2, they actually got them in the same room. Uh, yeah. Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger got to trade catchphrases. It yeah. was, it's, they still didn't do much, but it was fun. There was at least like a shot or two of them like using yeah. guns on the, on the camera together. If, if you told um, me I had to watch any Expendables movie mm. ag again, I would be like, two, please. Like, that's the one I enjoy. Yeah. Uh, but then they made three, which is forgettable. Pretty uh, forgettable. They had, like... It's like a, a new team of Expendables, so they didn't have a lot of the same old cast. Yeah. Without and the gimmick, these movies are nothing. You realize there's nothing going on. It was really, really weird, that one, because you can tell that, like, they had access to some big actors, but they never had access to them in a way that made for a coherent storyline. So, like, we got Wesley Snipes. Cool! You should have Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes belongs mm -hmm. in this kind of movie. That's cool. Um, we only got him for, like, a couple of sequences. Well, shit. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, so you lost most of the Expendables. You're going to replace him with, like... 
newer action stars, right? No, mostly just younger actors. Just like oh. new characters. Oh, well, we got, and, they got Ronda Rousey, which seemed like a bigger deal at the time. Uh, and uh, they got Antonio Banderas, which admittedly he looked like he was having fun. And then you got <laughs> Harrison Ford, who looked so fucking bored and like basically just sat in a helicopter the whole time. Um, he, he was he was on set for an hour. I, like, <laughs> if that. Like, it's just, it really just reads that whole uh, way. Um, it's, it, that movie's a fucking mess. That it's, it's, not the worst thing I've ever seen because Expendables exists, but like it's it's still not yeah, good. And this thing has just been deteriorating over and over and over again. And and, and the thrill the, of seeing all these people on the screen together is gone. It's the, no longer impressive to see Dolph the, Lundgren uh, and Stallone yeah. on screen together. You and know? the idea of again, uh, yeah. the idea of uh, the audience like caring deeply about these characters is, is never something they've ever bothered to establish. It was supposed to be the gimmick. I don't care about yeah. Barney, the character yeah. that Stallone plays. But this movie is trying to pretend like I did this whole time. Well, because theoretically, uh, we're four movies yeah. in, right? Surely you have some emotional connection but, to the characters. And I'm like, mm. ordinarily, that would be true. But not in yeah. this franchise. If, a lot. It's important to state that a lot of these badass cinema actors mm. uh, came out of sort of the Reagan era. Yeah. And a lot of the action films at the time, uh, specifically Rambo 2 and Commando. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red were, Scorpion as well. And, yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Or, or, but they're all they're all like wait, extensions of American foreign which, policy which and the American Red, id. Red Scorpion? Red Scorpion was the one where Dolph Lundgren was a uh, Russian super spy, like the evil James Bond. But he gets oh. like betrayed by, yeah, uh, by I, Russia I, and turns against Russia and basically I, kills Russia. <laughs> it's, it's a very entertaining movie. Do not get me wrong, but it's I mean, absolutely ridiculous. And it's absolutely like American propaganda. Right. Commando and first blood part two are entertaining movies, yes. but they're morally but, in the doldrums. Like I said, they're, uh, they're extensions of this, um, this cold war American personality. Yeah, so, the idea that we are, awesome and masculine yeah, this, uh, and all of our violence is justified yeah, because ma- we say so masculinity and violence and you know bulging sweaty manly muscles like it was a very particular version of machismo yeah machismo excuse me that um just sort of permeated the decade and actually informed a generation as to what mm-hmm. a man needs to look like that was also the age um, when like uh, you know the wcw rose yeah, to extreme uh, prominence and yeah, yeah, this the, is this w- is what I grew up with. Was really big. This uh, is what yeah. I was told. Like, if you if you can't rip a phone book in half, you're not a man. Like, that's yeah, what yeah. the kind so, of bullshit nonsense I was told when I was a kid. Uh, when you're watching the first Expendables, you kind of roll with that a little bit. It's like, okay, yeah. this is like last ride. Uh, yeah, of, of a little that, bit. Uh, we know like, this is data. This is yeah. 2010. We don't care anymore. Yeah, but it's kind of fun like, to see them all in the same room. Good yeah, for that. Like, you it, know, it, like, it's it's like Freddy versus Jason. Dolph Lundgren it's like, it's been, been it, it's been a decade yeah. past its prime, but we're gonna we're gonna enjoy this. Anyway. And there's an element, and I and I hate to say it, there's an element of it that's just sort of like, a, you know what? Dolph Lundgren hasn't been in a theatrically released mm-hmm. film in 15 years. Well, my, Let uh, him have it. <laughs> You know, my my, my wife comp- was it you or my wife who compared this? No, you did this uh, did. to um, the Adam Sandler movies. Yeah, Adam Sandler hires all of his comedian friends, yep. gives them nice big fat paychecks, and they make garbage. Yeah. They don't care that they're making garbage. They just want to have fun and making a movie together. And I can't, I can't. Uh, you know what? Good for you. The problem is, I also have to see it. Yeah. So so it doesn't gl- really I'm work glad, for me. I'm glad you're having fun, but you know, I'm yeah. I'm 
losing my soul when you do that. So yeah. um, and I feel the same. Uh, little bits of my soul also flew off while I'm watching <laughs> Expend Forbles, uh, oh. because now all we're doing is looking at that raw masculine idiocy with no excuse behind it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's just embarrassing and pathetic it's, it's, how they're really trying to cling on to this bygone era. And on top of that, like I can handle brainless machismo mm. action cinema. I've enjoyed some brainless machismo. You can be done well. I you love know Commando. You, if you, I yeah, love Commando's Commando. fun, right? Like you I, can I totally like do this. Predator. You know, yeah, movies well, like Predator's a, subverting that, but still, true. it's great. It can be done. It can be done unironically. It can be done cheaply and be really, really. Again, I love Blood Moon. It can be done. That doesn't mean you get like a free pass to to half asset. And here's the thing with Expendables. More so than any of the other Expendables movies. And one and three are not well-made films. <laughs> two, two is fine. Two is only okay. Two, two is best, fine. Yeah. Like, but like one and three really trying to ride that gimmick and not really trying very hard to do anything interesting, you know, artistically, cinematically, narratively. Um, a lot of this movie is so strikingly incompetent <laughs> like it's actually like it's it's incoherently edited there's listen a lot of action movies hell, a lot of non-action movies use blue screen nowadays or green screen to the extent that it's actually getting kind of ridiculous like i saw this behind the scenes thing about uh, the tv series secret invasion and there was a scene that was literally just samuel L. jackson sitting in a chair in front of a wall in an apartment holding a gun that was the whole shot. Mm. They gave him a fake gun so they could replace it in post. Like, oh who, what God. the fuck? Is, like, it should be a fake prop, gun, but you can get a realistic prop gun. Why are we doing this? What are you... Just shoot the fucking scene, um, for crying out loud. There's a so, wonderful uh, shot. It's a behind-the-scenes of the Hobbit movies. Yeah. Which, you know, very special effects. Oh, a movies. lot and, going on. And they got... Sorry, uh, and McKellen plays the wizard mm. in that one, and he's sitting in a set and it's all green mm-hmm. like the, where he has to put his hands are like archways where he knows the doorways are those are like actual physical sets but mm-hmm. it's all painted green yeah and he's sitting there amongst all these green and he's acting to a character who's not there who's going to be yeah. added in another another time yeah and he kind of breaks down a little bit like he kind of like start like puts his hands over his face and starts to cry it's like he, he like lost sight of what the craft was supposed to be at that point like yeah. what is acting now I remember hearing a story about um Oh, God. Who played Zod in Superman 2? Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp. I don't know why I blanked on that. Terrence Stamp, wonderful actor. Uh, he had a small role in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. He played, like, the senator from Naboo. Uh, it's not a great role, but... And, and, and apparently Terrence Stamp didn't even do it because he just wanted to be in Star Wars. He did it because he knew he would have a scene with Natalie Portman, and he thought she was a very talented young actor. Okay. So he was very excited to do a scene with Natalie Portman. And then he got to the set and they said, you're acting opposite a tennis ball today. Yeah. And he's like, I don't even get to act with... Ah, fuck. It sucks. But here's the deal. At the very least, in a lot of those movies, when the actual scene comes out, it looks like Samuel L. Jackson has a real gun. It looks like Serene McKellen is in a real room. It looks like Terrence Stamp is actually acting with Natalie Portman, more or less. Uh, the green screen in this movie, a lot of it is distractingly bad. 
and like it's, it's unconvincing it's kind of it's, random yeah. uh, it, it's even like we're gonna go to a house like i couldn't yeah. even get a physical set for a lot of it yeah uh and and it's all in service of i mean most importantly it's just mm. in service of trash yeah. uh, and trashy ideas and mm. trashy idiot characters these aren't heroic characters no which uh, isn't necessarily required no and it's okay to have anti-heroes sure. but uh, these are soldiers. They're they're yeah. mercenaries, but they're they, soldiers. They're they, militarily trained. They do the jobs uh, that the Marines aren't allowed to do, so they yeah. have to have a certain moral gray area. And, and they which, have okay, that's the premise. And they're drawn out yeah. like GI Joe characters. This one's the explosives expert. Yeah. This one, uh, Jason Statham, is good with knives. And, that kind of stuff. And they even and, have uh, like like. G.I. Joe character names. Like, this guy's name is Easy Day, and this yeah. woman's name is Lash, because she yeah. has, like, a metal whip. I get yeah. it. Lee, I... Cr- Lee Christmas is, uh, yeah. is Jason Statham's character. Yeah. Um, but they're not defined by their courage or their bravery or mm. going and doing something dangerous. They just are destructive. It's about yeah. the, the military power they have. Yeah. Rather than any kind of qualities of integrity. Yeah. They don't stand for anything. <clears throat> they what they stand for is their right to be crude assholes. And you know that's what? kind of it because yeah. they treat women very poorly. Um, yeah. Megan Fox is in this movie. And, yeah, and I actually have gone to bat for Megan Fox on numerous <clears throat> occasions because sure. I actually think she's a very talented, funny actress. She's great. Um, but and I've said this before because of the way she looks. Mm. Because she's been on, like, magazine covers. And, yeah. You know, she's been a model. Because she looks like a model. Yeah. She's cast uh, for her looks. Yeah. And so she's required to be somebody who just looks good. Yeah. And, and even when she's they never not, they her... find excuses. Like, in, yeah. like, Teenage well, Ninja Turtles. Like, hey, we come up with an excuse for you to dress in, like, a schoolgirl outfit. No, it's like... Really? It's like, I'm a reporter. A- April O'Neil actually has, like, a like a tiny bit to do. But I feel yeah. like no director has, aside from... Um, the director of Jennifer's Body, mm. uh, and and um, like a few other exceptions, they've never given her like a good character to work. Uh, with. One exception um, to that small role, but I'll give him this: uh, Judd Apatow, and this is forty. Yeah, she's great, and this is yeah, forty. She, she's um, working for Leslie Mann. Leslie Mann is kind of intimidated by uh, her youth and vitality and her, uh, you know, sort of superficial beauty, and it blinds her to the fact that she's a real person. And they mm. actually have a nice conversation about yeah, that. That's yeah, a good bit. That, that's they, a good, yeah, they actually they, have... they they play to Megan Fox's mm. sort of. Uh, uh, unfortunately, like their persona that Hollywood has bestowed upon them, yeah. but they use it to good effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Here, I, I feel like they they're just totally mistreating Megan Fox oh, yeah. because uh, the first time we see the character, mm-hmm. first of all, she she's now dating the Jason Statham character. Yeah, uh, and by the way, she's new to the series. By the way, yeah, we this seen is her our first movie. Yeah, uh, Stallone arrives at Jason Statham's house at like ten in the morning. And they open the door, and she's literally throwing dishes at him, like like yeah. a Lockhorn's strip. Like it's yeah, it's, it's really like retro. She, she's treated as this kind of oh, heroine no. character. Oh no, my shrieking wife slash my, girlfriend. Yeah, it's, it's a nagging wife joke, and yeah. um, and so yeah, like the, the two Andy the two Cap men kind of like look at each other askance, yeah. like get get this, we, women, women, right? Am I right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're gonna go get a, yeah. a drink at a bar instead. We're gonna yeah. be at, fellows. At ten, and <laughs> Jesus guys, th- that's that's bad enough. Yeah, but. I don't know why they made this decision, but they decided oh, I know to why. dress Megan Fox uh-huh. in this, like, slinky... Like, she looks fantastic in it, but... Of course. 
it's this like the slinky red cutout backless mini red mini dress. Yeah. Like, this cocktail dress. And she's wearing high heeled shoes. Yeah. Her hair is done up beautifully. Yeah. Her makeup is to the nines. Like she's ready for Oscar night. Yeah. And it's 10 in the morning and she's throwing dishes at Jason Statham. It's like, what this you, is gross, you what guys. Were you, yeah, it's We're doing everything we can to have this like hateful misogynistic image directed uh-huh. at this beautiful woman. And, and what's really wild about that is there's clearly an opposing artistic force within the movie hmm. that is trying to do something better than that. Because we find out after that... Hmm. That Megan Fox, uh, Jason Statham had like a relation with like Charisma Carpenter, I think, in the first movie. But she was oh, just she was just a citizen. She wasn't an expendable, mm. um, so she didn't get to go on the missions or anything like that. We find out after that opening scene that Megan Fox is an expendable too, and I'm like, and, oh, oh, hold on, and in so, fact, she's the leader. Well, she will be, but yeah. like, there's she's like. Over the course of the film, things happen to the Expendables, and like it looks like someone else might need to step up their game, and maybe it's Megan Fox. Yeah, but... Megan Fox gets to she gets to lead the mission, right? Anyway. That should be cool, mm. right? But here's the thing: they tell you, "Oh yeah, Megan Fox is an Expendable." Okay, cool. The first third of the movie is like this one mission in like Libya, where she doesn't show up, literally, mm. just isn't there. Well, that kind of undermines that entire premise. Yeah, so when you yeah. say at the end, it's like, yeah, for, for a while now, Megan Fox is going to have to run the Expendables. I'm like, it feels like you forgot to set that up. And then when there are missions with Megan Fox in them, Jason Statham is still fucking doing everything. Yeah. So like, it's, it's so really a waste. Something. Ha- so the what's going on in Libya is um, uh, Iko Uwais, yes. who was in... Um, the raid movies. Uh, the raid movies, yeah. and he was also in one of the one of the Furious films, I believe. Um, mm. Or was that Tony uh, Jaw? Tony Jaw's in this as well. So yeah. I, I they, they've what, done a lot more. One, one of them is in the, one of the Furious movies. <laughs> yeah. um, both of these movies have enormous cast, so I, yeah. I apologize for. Um, yeah, Eagle Ways plays the bad gonna... guy. Tony Jaw plays like an old associate of Barney um, who gets yeah. called in for one last. Uh, yeah, there, and it, it it has that sort of. Uh, for reasons I won't reveal, uh, Stallone has to sit this one out, and um, yeah, he's written out of the movie for a little bit. So yeah, he's out of the movie, and Jason Statham is also like, it feels like Stallone's like, kind of done with this. Yeah, like he doesn't want. It's like clearly <laughs> like, he's not in most of the. Can movie. we make this and, one uh, without me? You got to at least be in the beginning. Oh, fine. Um, there's a moment with the Stallone character, which should have been like a really emotional moment, and everybody just laughed. It in the, was in the a theater. huge laugh. It, it, like it was totally misguided. It, it was like um, the way people laughed at like the Ken song in Barbie, but it was yeah. like the most emotional moment the Expendables ever tried for. Oh my <laughs> like god, totally, it was hilarious. They totally whiffed it. Oh Jesus! Um, but uh, I, I, you might want to see it just for like how embarrassing it is. But this I is a terrible that, movie. So, but I only a couple of scenes are that entertainingly bad. The rest of it's just bad. Yeah. Um, so. But yeah, um, yeah, Tony Jaw, they, they mm. meet while they're out on the mission, and he yeah. ends up joining. And, anyway, Eco Waste uh, is Eco stealing Waste, nuclear bombs. stealing nuclear bombs. They Boom. look like uh, G.I. Joe cartoon trinkets, and he's going to pass yeah. them off to this mysterious char- off-screen character called the Ocelot. Which, and, uh, we'll, I feel we'll like learn someone the, is a Metal Gear Solid fan. And, and we'll learn the identity of the Ocelot later in the movie. What was the but, name um, of the Metal Gear Solid villain who was an Ocelot? I Hang have on. no idea. Me- Metal... I couldn't tell you. One. Revolver Ocelot. That's the name of the Metal Gear character. There's oh such God. a cooler name than just the Ocelot. Revol- Revolver Ocelot is fucking awesome. Re- Revolver Ocelot. Yeah. So- oh, God. That's fun, damn it. Mm. Sounds like a double dragon character. Yeah, well, it's a video game, dude. Yeah, I guess it is. There was also a Psycho Chameleon, uh, who was a really cool uh, uh, Metal Gear villain, because what Psycho Chameleon would do... There was also do- Boomer Kuwanger and... 
hey, spark mandrel. Those are good. No, but here's the cool thing about Psycho Chameleon. Psycho Chameleon would read the save files on your PlayStation and comment on the games that you're playing. It's like, oh, I see someone's a fan of Carmageddon. <laughs> like oh trying to mess God. with your head. Like it was, oh it was, that was big deal when that happened. Can you think oh, that poor actor though had to like read like <laughs> well, for like hundreds of games? To be fair, I think that was actually back in the PS like one era, so I'm pretty sure there was just text. Oh, okay. So just insert the text of the save file. Was oh, okay. Never really mind. Did. Yeah, probably yeah. not. Probably not. That anyway, I I've talked enough about expend four bowls oh. because the story goes on a pace. They go on a mission. They mm. blow shit up, yeah. and it's largely incompetent. Yeah, largely badly filmed. Yeah. They they put a lot of the expendables like lock, literally locked mm. them in a room for a big period. So we Jason get to see Statham Randy Couture's do. urine. Randy Couture peas. Yeah. Uh, Someone wrote her- that. And then, and then, and then they uh, were like, we have to put this on camera. Dolph Lundgren is a recovering alcoholic. His sobriety is mocked. Yeah. Uh, they say like, oh, I liked him better when he was an alcoholic. And then later in the movie, when things aren't going so well, he uses alcohol like Popeye uses spinach. Yeah. Like he, he, t- like, he, he takes a shot of whiskey and yeah, they might I'm as well not going to pretend that anyone should get their moral lessons from the Expendables. But even then, come on. Good <laughs> that's, that's in poor taste. Like the, these films have no values. They they value no. violence and uh, this very, very strict, limiting, kind of disgusting masculine code. Yeah, uh, that it should not be celebrated anymore. Here, here's here's I think if you just want to look at like and again, make a masculine movie. That's fine. You can totally do it. You don't have to do it shitty. Like and when you can tell that like they're really struggling to like find like big actors to fill some of these roles because there are some people and they're fine but they're also just like not a big action movie star when that was the whole premise and i'm like have you ever even attempted to reach out to pam greer (laughs) to linda hamilton to cynthia rothrock there's no way you could get michelle yo right now but maybe 10 years ago like I get like Linda Carter. Linda or, Carter or, would be cool. Or yeah. Zoe Bell. Or Zoe G- Bell. Or to- you can Jeannie, get Zoe Bell. Jeannie Epper, for God's yeah. sake. I know she. I think she's in her mid seventies. Be a cool cameo. Up. Yeah, it'd be a cool cameo. Like no, there's so many. Kate Beckinsale, uh, Millie Jovovich. It's just like a, it's a pity that. Um, yeah. Th- it's it's a pity that Julie Strain has passed away because I. Was, oh, she's been great. But here's the thing: we already have those movies. We have Hard Ticket to Hawaii. We have all okay. of those Andy Sedaris movies. That's, that's the those Julie are Strain ch- version. That's the Julie Strain version. <laughs> those know. are low-budget movies. They are a million times more fucking entertaining True. than anything The Expendables ever did. I remember there was a there was a time in like the early 2010s when they were talking about doing, as like a gimmick movie, the mm-hmm. all-female Expendables. Uh, and I even... It's, just, yeah, uh, it's all women who yeah, yeah. do action stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and unfortunately, there was this mentality, apparently... That uh, no one would go see that. You would need to center it around a man so that all the women would be like around mm. that guy. And that was a disgusting mentality. And I can see why they didn't bother moving well, forward a, with it. But you know what? Get a trans man. Do it. But like, <laughs> Tran- please, what, what, what transaction heroes do we have? Hardly any. Not enough. Um, Le- Le- but uh, here's what I'll say. You know, Laverne Cox had a really fun action sequence with Kate Beckinsale in that movie Jolt. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay, that's cool. Uh, I, that I sounds did. fun. J- Jolt, I is, it was good. Jolt is ridiculous, and I love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'll just say this. Stallone has been like producing these movies uh, at any time. You you could have brought in 
some more star power than you've got mm-hmm. just by not hiring all men. And I get, I'm glad you got Megan Fox. I've got a, like another woman character mm-hmm. like in these movies once in a while, but like it's absurd. Wish they gave her a good character, and right? Better and like, like I respected the character a and, little bit. And, and maybe that, maybe they did offer and they turned him down because they read the scripts. I don't mm-hmm. know, but like it's damn disappointing. There's a character in this movie that for a second I was like, oh, do they get Ashley Judd? Because that works too. She was in all those thrillers in like the late oh, 90s, yeah, yeah. early 2000s. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, get she, Ashley Judd. She, she would have just played a, a kind of role she'd played before, the, the, the CIA suit. Who's just Whatever! Sort of the scenes, get the but, stunt yeah. casting! That's why we're here! Anyway. I want to I want to I want to buy the director of this movie a drink. Just not done not as like a commiseration, not, not but a the shot thank- of, not a shot of Don Julio. No, like no, a no, nice no. cocktail. Yeah, and I just want to say thank you for making a movie so bad. <laughs> that we that we No, it's not even that I hate. It's not that I hate it. It's just that I feel like so many of like the big action type movies especially the ones that go to theaters but honestly a lot of straight to video action movies are way better than this now this is low even for straight to video a lot of like the the sort of generic crap that we get now is made to such a generic two and a half three star standard that i think a lot of people are very eager to give pablum a pass because well at least it's competently filmed right finally (laughs) one where you can actually just say no see when you take that away you realize just how empty it is and then you realize that competent filmmaking is just a disguise for shit sometimes Mm -hmm. this is there's other stuff that's just as shitty as this but it's slicker and we give it a pass we should stop doing that because the difference between like a shitty movie and a movie that everyone gives a free pass should not be like better green screen like we can do better than this anyway uh let's talk about a a genre film that was actually really kick-ass and pretty small budgeted Mm -hmm. and went straight to hulu this week yeah it's called no one will save you (laughs) and i almost missed this and whitney told me it was really good so i was like okay i have to make sure i take i take time for it and i am glad i did this movie is very cool (laughs) <laughs> Whitney, tell people about No One Will Save You. Yeah, No One Will Save You is the uh, latest film from Brian Duffield, um, who uh, did a really wonderful... He wrote a really wonderful movie mm. a couple of years ago called Love and Monsters that I'm very fond of. Oh, that movie's great. Yeah. That was that was one uh, of the films that kind of got, like... They still gave it a theatrical release, mm. even in the middle of the pandemic. They just put it into, like, drive throughs I actually saw it at a drive through And we were ready to just, like, any movie. Give us any movie. We don't care if it's crap. We'll yeah, like yeah. We'll have fun, and then we were enthralled. It was really well made. <laughs> it was a really good story. It was um, good. He did that. Uh, he and these are he's only directed one other film, which I haven't seen. It was called Spontaneous, about teenagers who burst into flames. I heard that was good, but uh, I didn't I see heard that. that was good. But yeah, yeah, he wrote he wrote Love and Monsters. Yeah. Uh, he wrote uh, that western with um, Natalie Portman called Jane Got a Gun. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. he, he wrote the screenplay okay. to that one, and, and he that. wrote that thriller uh, with mm. Kristen Stewart called Underwater. I wish which, I liked that as much was, as everyone else did. I thought it was fine. I, I didn't. Yeah. I wasn't blown away, but I did enjoy it. He um, also wrote that uh, Mick G slasher comedy thing, The Babysitter, which, which I did which I've heard terrible for. things. About, I did not but, care um, for it. Yeah. But uh, he wrote and directed this one, and um, yeah. this is, stars Caitlin Deaver uh, from uh, uh, Booksmart. Yep, and uh, she's living in a, a small town, mm-hmm. and. 
with no dialogue. There's no dialogue in this film. There's like one line uh, there, of dialogue. There's a in the couple middle. of little like incidental it's, it's, bits incidental at the words, mostly but, at the beginning yeah. when like she like wanders into town briefly and you yeah. hear some people talking, but not much. But um, she's living in a house by herself and she's she crafts. She builds like birdhouses and little model houses, that kind of thing. And things seem really kind of pleasant for a few minutes. She goes into town and the mood changes. And yeah. people kind of look at her askance, and she looks at a funeral, and she goes home and starts writing letters to somebody named Maud. Mm-hmm. Like, Dear Maud, I saw your parents today. And we don't, over the course of the film, we'll learn a little bit more about who this Maud character is. Yeah, but clearly something uh, has happened that has turned her into a local pariah, yeah. and it involves this Maud This person. Maud character. And yeah. um, so she's, like, really kind of disconnected. She's really alone. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you know, one evening, there's a home invasion... And, wouldn't you know it, it's an alien gray. Yeah. Like, the big-headed, lanky, big big black-eyed aliens you remember from the X-Files. Yeah, the X-Files, um, or uh, Communion, or... Uh, I guess Communion. Yeah, yeah. or uh, the the very end of thir- uh, Close Encounters of the Third mm-hmm. Kind. Uh, the, the stereotypical image we mostly have of what an alien who would come to Earth mm-hmm. would actually look like. Because that's what they really look like. Really. Sure, when... Um, I, maybe I don't know, yeah. but like regardless, this is this is it's such you, you, you an talk- indelible image that people don't use it very often anymore. It's, yeah, almost, it's yeah. almost considered a cliche. So it's, it's weird that a movie will lean into it this yeah. hard. Um, the aliens are really scary. Yep, they yeah, have they, 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 we see their flying saucers. Mm-hmm. They shoot beams of light in through the windows when Caitlin Deaver's like trying to hide from them. She sees this thing stalking around her house. Mm. It's scary and threatening. But it's not evil. No, we that's the know, It's mysterious. It. We don't know what it wants. There's there's a bit at the beginning. For a moment, you're not sure hmm. how sci-fi this is. And very quickly, it's clear that it is. So I'm comfortable yeah. saying that. But, but for yeah. a moment, I was like, are we going to find out that like these aren't aliens and these are like, assholes from town like uh-huh. wearing masks to try to be mean to her or something? But no, no. Aliens... First scene with the home invasion, very, very clear. This is not a human being. This is a mm. this is a creature of some kind. Mm. Um, and it does this thing, and I've seen a lot of movies and TV try to pull this off. And I'm, I'm actually struggling to think of a specific example, but I know I've seen it recently. Where a, a strange entity uh, will be introduced... Uh, oh, you know what it was? We saw that this is in the Star Trek Next Generation episode. It was the first episode mm. with the Trill. Where okay. a, an alien will be introduced or a creature will be introduced and it's very unhuman. Something weird is going on with it. And the only indication that something malevolent may be taking place is the score. Oh. And you, the audience, are supposed to go, oh, something well, other than myself and a scary score. This must be horrifying. It's kind of weird to us, yeah. you know, human, the humans watching. But is something inhuman on screen. I have been trained by so many movies and stories and TV shows over the years to believe that, like, if you introduce a strange entity... Mm-hmm. And you try to get me to think it's scary, but there's no outward aggression, malevolence, villainy, violence mm-hmm. that can't necessarily be justified by self-defense. Uh, then I question whether it's evil. Yeah. I, sus- I I'm anticipating a twist where it's actually turns out that like we were the bad guys all along, yeah. that kind of thing. And I'm but not going to... I think that's a fine way to tell a story. But, it it you know, can it's... be, but it, I, for, I'm getting used to that plot point as well. Okay. That, that's a trope that I think is getting less effective 
because we're more open to the idea that a strange creature might not be evil rather than instantly assuming it is. Yeah. So if you use that trope, you, you, you might want to be careful. But the movie doesn't follow that. And it's not as cut and dry as it appears, but there's definitely, even though there's almost no dialogue in the whole movie, and it's, a lot of it is just Caitlin Deaver trying to stay alive while she's being attacked mm-hmm. by aliens. Um, you're right. There's definitely, if you're paying attention, more going on. Like, the aliens are communicating. You see them, like, figuring things out. I, being I love confused the way, by things, yeah, you know? I, um, and... Like, they have, a, they, have, they have a plan. They have a culture. It's not just, mm, we're evil yeah, like, and we're going to kill you today. There's there's a yeah, story yeah. going on that she doesn't know about. There's, like, a lot of visual variety with the aliens. Yeah. They communicate through, like, body language. There's yeah. there's an alien uh, with, like, very long limbs that oh, yeah. terrified <laughs> terrified me. Oh, yeah. Like, really wonder, wonderfully scary Cause, thing. Because it, uh, it gets taller, too. Yeah. Like, there's this one bit, like, she sees this, like, really tall, like, almost like, it looks like a like, Jack Skellington mm. kind of lanky uh, in the woods. I'm like, oh, well, that's... A, a, like kind of a slender man kind of look oh that's kind of scary and then there's this one bit later on i don't want to ruin all the good visual reveals but i'll tell you this it gets as tall as the house yeah, and i'm like oh shit that's like a, a very tall it alien. kind of unfurls yeah, a it's very a... tall creature that wants to kill caitlin deaver yeah um and what we could and of course what the movie is really getting at is sort of the aliens are not, not just a symbol of sort of this whatever went on with her and maude this yeah. mysterious off-camera character but they seem to be kind of psychically responding to her emotional state. Mm-hmm. They're almost drawn to her pain. And in yeah. fact, her pain gets sort of extrapolated outward into the world in this really curious way by the end of the movie. I yeah. love the way this movie the, This movie um, is one of my favorite endings of the year. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you anything <laughs> about it other than to say, not what I thought would happen. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I admit I'm a sucker for those alien greys yeah. and flying saucers. Yeah. Uh, it has those kinds of designs give a lot of movies, at least to my eye, a little bit more of a classic sci-fi feeling. Sure. It's probably also one of the reasons I responded so strongly to that film from a couple of years ago called The Vast of Night, which oh, is a flying saucer great. movie. That was great. It was, it, yeah, it was made for like $100, yeah. and it's one of the most effective thrillers you'll see. It's one of the best sci-fi films of the decade, period. Yeah. yeah. See see The Vast of Night. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that's a really terrific movie. Yeah. Um, and, and also see uh, No One Will Save oh, You, yeah, because... Okay. Uh, a lot of it. A lot of it is Caitlin Deaver's performance. She mm-hmm. gives a fantastic performance. She's so movie. damn talented. Uh, and because we actually have, it's not just panic and resourcefulness no. when it comes to like the actions. There's actually like a whole emotional gamut she goes through in every scene, yeah. and she communicates all that really well without any dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, turn it up as loud as you can. Watch oh, the, the sound again. Yeah, headphones really help for watching it. Um, yeah, like, because yeah. Uh, the, sound the, the alien voices are really cool. Ooh, the yeah. sound, like where the aliens are lurking, just sort of the crashes, a lot of mm. the, the sci-fi uh, <clears throat> alien ships, and just sort of the soundscapes that you're going through are really going to draw you in. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved it. I really loved this picture. Yeah. I, and, I, and because it's so... Uh, peculiar in its approach to sort of the way the aliens are responding to emotions it actually has like a little bit of texture in there as well it's yeah not, ju- not just a really good thriller there's there's the, like a, this li- a little bit of thought going into it as well this could have just been a narrative exercise can we do like a sci-fi home invasion scary alien invasion movie without mm-hmm. any dialogue speaking apparently uh, maybe my mind was playing tricks to me i thought there was a little more than this apparently there's only one line of dialogue proper in the whole there, movie. there's only one yeah. okay i well the, you're talking about there there's not like no notable 
dialogue that right. actually like is important. It's not characters talking to each other. We yeah. hear like some people talking in the background. That's, a, that's, that, that's I got I got kind of like swept away. That. I'm not, not also, even sure if that was even scripted, also there's like so. one song where you hear lyrics, but that that's not dialogue. It's not yeah, the same thing. So it's not like it's yeah. a it's not like it's an empty soundscape. It's actually sonically, it's an incredibly ambitious and exciting yeah, film. So a great, um, great, and this is the kind of film that's not going to get any awards attention, no. but it should get sound awards. It should have. It, it yeah, should get a good world. And it sh- and Caitlin Deaver. Can yeah. can we please start <laughs> talking about? Her because she's so good. She's so good in this she movie. just keeps through. Um, she was in another Hulu original, uh, uh, Rosalind, where she played uh, Romeo's first girlfriend. She, and the movie she, is not good. The movie's not good, but, but I like she's her. She's great in it. Yeah. She's amazing in it. And the other movie I was uh, people have been like comparing this because it's another movie that went straight to Hulu. It was made by Twentieth Century, uh, and in a better world, this would have gotten a theatrical release. It might not have like been a huge hit, but it probably would have more than made its money back. And this movie would absolutely have benefited from a, from a big theatrical experience just because of its silence, because of its excellent use of widescreen photography. Mm-hmm. Um, people, people comparing it to Prey, which is also a story yeah. about, about, a, about a, one a woman fighting, woman off, woman a fighting off an alien monster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a really good double feature. And then I got really, really I mean, sad that, because... Prey I, is a little bit more like action and, and mayhem uh, oriented. But, but, yeah. that, but then you don't want movies to be exactly the same in a double feature. You want them to play off yeah, of each other so. a little bit. So I think that'd be good. And then I got really sad because the great triple feature of that would have been the other Hulu original, The Princess, starring Joey King as a princess mm. in like a diehard fantasy story yeah and it's like, a really fun kick-ass movie it's probably the least of the three but it was really really fun i think, I think I, we said it was a good slumber party it's kind a great of a slumber movie, party movie yeah. disney deleted it of course they did they they, yeah. they decided to go for the tax write-off so it's not on hulu and it's not anywhere else now and you just can't see that movie even though that movie should be having finding its that could be your new hocus pocus, where like nobody cared when it first came out, and then ten years ago you're selling you're selling t-shirts, mm-hmm. that could have been that thing. So see this movie before Disney deletes it is my point. <laughs> sure, you there, don't there, know there how is, long. There's some urgency to these things now. Yeah. So yeah, see this movie well. See you no can. one will save you because I really really loved it. It's really really good. It's really really scary, uh, and uh, it's it's also just an impressive filmmaking exercise. So. Mm. Um, yeah, it works on like pretty much every level. I really loved it. Uh, tell me about uh, let's let's go into a very different direction. We're doing All a right. lot of genre stuff. Uh, there's only one more movie we both saw this week. All right, uh, and it is the Luchador biopic Cassandro. That's right. Um, this is about uh, the real life Cassandro, mm-hmm. who uh, was uh, named uh, Saul Saul. Yeah. Who uh, he lives in Texas, mm-hmm. where there's sort of a, a thriving luchador scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, this introduced something about uh, luchador culture that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. I, I'm fond of luchador culture, but I've never been to a live luchador yeah. match. You're, you're uh, no expert, Lucha but you've enjoyed what you've seen. Yeah, I, I, I sadly have not seen lucha libre live. I would love to go to Mexico City and see mm-hmm. some lucha libre. Um, I know about uh, Rudos, which are the bad guys, the heels, mm-hmm. and Technicos, which are the faces or the heroes. Um, what I didn't know about was the world of Exoticos, uh, which throughout like the 1980s was actually a really offensive kind of a character. They were mm. these sort of um, kind of sissy stereotypes, these cross-dressing characters, and they would mm. come out uh, uh, you know, queer-coded or just outwardly gay. Mm-hmm. And the idea was we're going to get these kind of girly luchadors out into the ring and everyone is going to mock them. For not being manly enough. We're sort of mocking their queerness. They're mm. deeply homophobic characters. And they would always lose. Yeah. They'd go up against a, a technical or a and they'd be, they'd be beaten. Uh, Cassandro 
wanted to be uh, a, an exotico. Well, he didn't and, want to be an exotico. He, was, he wanted to be a, a professional wrestler. He wanted, wanted to be Lucha Libre. Yeah. And uh, he, he was a gay man. Mm-hmm. Uh, developed this uh, exotico persona, you know, yeah. feather boas and makeup and uh, yeah. nice, fabulous he, hair. But his idea was, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wouldn't it be great if an exotico won? Yeah, like, what, that's the gimmick. Let's, 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 wins. Instead of just like beating up the gay guy, let's have like have them be the hero yeah. and let's was, undermine this cliche. Yeah. yeah, and and that was uh, he got a, like a really interesting trainer who's like, yes, we're but we're actually going to make you a good wrestler as well. Uh, yeah. and, and he actually was. Uh, this was such a novel idea that people started to go for it. Yeah, and as a result, seeing the Exotico win kind of opened up a lot of people's minds. And he actually was kind of an important character in this ultra-masculine world of, uh, yeah. you know, these really manly wrestlers. Uh, here's a gay man who is the hero. Mm-hmm. And people embraced Cassandro. Yeah. There, there actually wasn't a lot of uh, pushback from within Lucha, Lucha Libre. Uh, uh, there's I, I, don't, of, I don't know that for a fact. At least in, but as the, it's said, yeah. stated in the movie. The movie um, suggests that you know, some audiences were, mm-hmm. were, not, were not so quick to turn around, but... Mm. Generally speaking, Cassandra was such a novelty, and he had such much, he had so much personality, yeah. and and he he did he became very very yeah, famous for this. That's a cool story. It's a great um, story. I would rather see rather have seen a documentary. Uh, now, mm. Gael Garcia Bernal, mm. who's an excellent actor, amazing, actor. Uh, plays Cassandra, and he's great as Cassandra. Mm-hmm. Um, he he uh, kind of dotes on his mother. His mother kind of mm. is wrestling with some mental health issues, and he takes care of her a lot. Mm. Um, uh, he has sort of a relationship with his trainer. He has a boyfriend who's in the closet. Uh, and, and he's married and has kids. Yeah. yeah so, so, like they so have, he's, they so only can date on the this guy. Um, played by the DJ Bad Bunny. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, plays the the closeted uh, boyfriend. Mm. Uh, all of this is interesting. Wait, no, no. DJ Bad Bunny doesn't play the closet boyfriend. He plays the uh, like the other guy working for like his manager. Oh, I thought it was the boyfriend. No, 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 no. I don't think you knew who DJ Bad Bunny. I was like, wait a minute, was that oh, DJ Bad Bunny? No, no, oh, no. It was. Um, oh, I, I got it mixed up. All right. Uh, it was Raul Castillo, uh, oh, who was right. in the who was in the HBO series Looking, which is great, by the way. Right. Uh, and I I I love him the pieces. I think he's a really good actor. So like, no, right. Bad Bunny was another character. Yeah, he's, mix, in it, though. I'm, he's in I'm, it though. I'm the asshole. I'm mixing them all up. Yeah, uh, you know. Mixing up every every single actor. It's, they're they're a, they're a um, young musician who's very very popular, and you're in your forties. You are not expected uh, no, to know who they are. I, <laughs> <laughs> you're not expected to know who they are. I know Bad Bunny was going to play like a uh, one of the DC characters. Like he was going to play a superhero character at some point. Oh yeah, he was. He was going to play he? like Lobo or Ambush oh, Bug. I forgot who he was going to play. Yeah, I know I know they someone. cast Bad Bunny as one of one of the DC what they were gonna superhero do. characters. Uh, El Muerto. He was going to be El Muerto, and apparently that got canceled. So he's like a, yeah. isn't he like a superhero luchador, El Muerto? Yeah, basically. Oh, no, actually, it was Marvel. Actually, was I didn't know Marvel. that. Yeah, he was going to be playing a, a Marvel character named El Muerto, and I don't know if it was going to be a TV series or a movie. Okay, but, well, fuck, I have no information. Yeah. I don't I fucking know. Um, yeah. Uh, point being, uh, I, I like Cassandra. I don't love Cassandra. Yeah. Because I feel like the filmmakers aren't really giving an interesting drama out of this. There's mm. not a lot of, uh, you know, not to, to sort of fall back on boring screenwriting one-on-one mm. stuff, but mm. look, looking for the conflict yeah. or the big issue here. What's what's to be done? We're, it's pretty a straightforward series of events kind of a film. And Cassandro yeah. is luckily an interesting character. So I feel like I'm being more informed 
that I am being entertained. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I liked all of the information and I liked the good performances I'm getting out of it, but it feels like almost incomplete. Like there's, there's a vital piece of the like actual story that's missing here. There's a, there's a, I was had this interesting response as I was watching the movie because I was interested in the movie and I was interested in the character. And again, Gal Garcia Bernal, great actor, giving a great performance. I hope he's not forgotten come awards time. He's amazing. Um, but it's a sports movie and thanks in large part to Rocky sports movies tend to have a certain expectation mm. in terms of the, the structure. And yeah. stru- there's a structure, there's a vibe of it. You know, here, he's an underdog. He's an absolute underdog at the beginning of this movie. And then he, he changes his style. He changes his gimmick. He leans into aspects of his personality that he was kind of hiding before. And all of that is incredibly, uh, you know, you could argue that it's heroic, it's liberating, it's inspirational. All that stuff is true. The movie could have been this maybe schmaltzy, but very satisfying Hollywood biopic yeah. of Cassandro. And there's like this big fight he had with the son of El Santo. Yeah, and that's El, 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 like, El Santo. Yeah. yeah, and that's and ordinarily that would be like the end of the movie. Like the way that the mo- this that scene plays out in the Hollywood version of this that they make to like win Oscars that would be at the end of the film that would be one of the last scenes in the film it's not it's in the middle here which is interesting structurally and what that tells me is that uh the filmmaker Roger Ross Williams uh isn't interested in making the cliched version of this tale now ironically I actually think in this particular context that version would have worked fine yeah. Because to give that kind of classic underdog story to a character, a person like Cassandro, would be long overdue. You know, it, it's it's you can't be upset about it. Like, good that that person deserves this old fashioned Rocky biopic type film. Rocky wasn't a biopic, but you know what I mean. Um, instead, we're actually taking the uh, cultural significance of Cassandro and uh, sort of the, the greatness of the person. And we're adding a lot of melancholy to it. It's actually a very sad film in a lot of ways. And like, mm. they talk a lot about like his alienation from his father and how, uh, you know, his, his one romantic relationship that he has over the course of the film is like deeply unsatisfying because his lover's in the closet. Um, it's, it's kind of a bummer, actually. And that's a valid take on the story, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's certainly... Like, if that's... One could argue that that's more fair, you know, than to not dress it up. On the other hand, one could also argue that he, he, was, he was a luchador. <laughs> Theatricality is part of it. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that could have been more balanced. I, I'm, this, is, this is one of those situations, though, where... I don't want to criticize the film for that because that's me saying that the movie isn't the movie I necessarily wanted to see. And so, like, I'm not reviewing the movie we got. I'm reviewing the movie that I think would have been maybe more more fun. But I don't think they're going after fun. I think they're going after more thoughtful. And I just think, ultimately, the movie, as you said, the actual events of the film, though sad though meaningful, though occasionally inspirational, um, that drama doesn't have that melodrama and that sensationalism that would make the film as a biopic 
satisfying enough to engage without falling into the hackneyed melodrama and then yeah, the hackneyed structure. Well, and I think we're only complaining about that. Like, I hate to make criticisms like that because it sounds like I'm longing for, like, hackneyed melodrama. Yeah, it's weird, right? Um, but I think what uh, that criticism reveals about something like Cassandro is that uh, there's something about the way this film is structured, just mm. the way its story is built, that would call for a, a more more melodramatic telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not... They're going for a sort of natural style, mm. but they haven't changed the script enough to get away from that twinge of melodrama that ordinarily mm. would bolster a film like this. Yeah. And we notice when that's missing. Right. Uh, and I feel like Cassandro, although definitely he, he has his fans, there are definitely mm. people who would know Cassandro and would be interested in seeing a film like this and going, oh, I didn't expect it to be this much of like a serious indie drama, I got to more of a sports film, how interesting, I am intrigued. That may be you. Mm. But for those of us who were not familiar with Cassandra, not as familiar with Cassandra, and that's the thing with a lot of biopics is, you know, maybe you've heard the person's name, but you don't necessarily know their life story. And, you know, you don't get your history from movies, but a lot of people get their introduction to people yeah. through these films that are trying to convey the, sort of the general narrative of their lives. Um, this kind of approach might be more satisfying if you already have the public image of Cassandra ingrained in your head. Mm. And then this can sort of underline or subvert those expectations. Uh, but without that, it it's just an, it's just an odd tone. It's not a bad movie. I, I quite like it, actually. But mm. it's an odd tone. It's not what I expected. And you should definitely yeah, not go in expecting this yeah, you know, a, underdog a, sports movie. It's not yeah, that. It's a, it's a little a little downbeat for, yeah. for, for such a colorful character. Yeah. Um, I would like to roll that right into A Million Miles Away. Do it. Because this is an interesting counterpoint. Because A Million Miles Away does all of those melodramatic things. Mm. This is also a biography. This is about Jose Hernandez. He's played by Michael Pena. Pause for respect for Michael Pena because oh, I really oh, like him. One of the great actors. Um, He's amazing. Yeah, uh, Jose Hernandez was the first uh, Latino in space, and he always dreams. And this goes back to his childhood. He's the son of migrant workers. They drive all. They're driving all around uh, the farms of California, uh, going where they can. And there's actually this montage of him going to all of the different schools. They would kind of rotate through throughout the school year because his family is always on the road and he has to work in the fields. And all he ever dreams of is being an astronaut. Uh, his teacher says, what do you want to be when he grows up an astronaut? But because he's so used to um, picking corn, the rocket looks like corn. Right. So he draws corn. That's he's a little kid. Yeah. Uh, and his, one of his teachers just says, you're really good at, like, astonishingly good at math. Like, you really understand numbers. Keep at it. Yeah. And, uh... And of course, when he sees uh, the moon landing in, yeah. in 1969 on television, his dream is is clinched. He, he wants to be a, an, an astronaut. And the movie takes us through every little beat along the way on his way to becoming an astronaut. He finally made it into space in the early 2000s. That's how long it took. It's a long time. He, he, uh, and there's what, this, would he been like 50 or something at that point? I think it, yeah, I think it was 50, in his like 40, early 50? 50s okay. by the time he finally got into space. Wow. But, but he did it. Good for him. Don't give up. Keep That's flying. amazing. Uh, and yeah, there's this uh, sort of running line throughout the the movie where he's like applying to NASA and they keep rejecting him. And he, he just keeps every rejection letter in the big uh, envelope. Uh, he falls in love. And, That's nice. Uh, uh, his wife is played by um, uh, 
Alita Battle Angel. Um, Rosa Salazar. I love Rosa Salazar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That's an interesting age gap. Uh, Michael Payne and Rosa Salazar? But they both play you know, various ages. Throughout. Okay, I guess so. so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the characters are the same age. Okay. Uh, is Michael Pena older than Rosa Salazar? Yes. <laughs> Quite a this bit. This is yeah. a common thing. In it's a, it's an interesting choice. Um, okay, I'll just, I'll just leave it. I, I didn't see the movie. No. I can't judge. Interesting uh, choice. I'll leave it there. It goes like he, he has a, a brother who's a bit of a criminal who is you know, t- encouraging him to follow his dreams. Almost every scene, mm. there's a speech about, you gotta follow your dreams. I have a dream. What's your dream? To have a dream. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's there, a, er, early on, yeah. uh, his dad says, you know, there's like five steps to success and here's what they are. One, two, three, four, five. And those are the names of chapters throughout the movie. I'll never mm. forget who you are. So once you think you're on the right path, you have to change path, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the, his wife dreams of opening a restaurant and she has to like take some of their savings so he can keep on doing astronaut training. So mm. she actually gives up something I appreciate about this movie is we understand a lot of what Rosa Salazar gives up mm-hmm. to, to help her husband so he can get into space. Okay. Uh, every single scene, utterly predictable. Mm. The dialogue, pretty corny. And you know what? fucking works yeah uh, there's a reason why a lot of this this nonsense works and you you sense while you're watching it this is trifling nonsense i understand that this is manipulative hollywood claptrap but it's working on me so by the yeah. time he gets to the end i finally made it you're kind of you're yay you're there with your yeah. grandparents and you're all kind of misting up a little bit because you're inspired by jose hernandez's story it's based on his own autobiography yeah um that's his story and you know what Kinda, good kinda, good for him. Kind of like how well it was put together. I, uh, Even if it is that clean Hollywood filmmaking. Yeah. Um, the director, uh, her name is, let me look it up, Alejandro Marquez Abella. Okay. Um, I think this might be her first feature. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful celebration of uh, Latino culture. Uh, it's a wonderful celebration of michael pena just as an actor because he finally gets to do that i'll take any excuse yeah, he, he's been in a couple biopics before because he was in that um cesar chavez movie yeah um you got some oh what was the name of that movie i don't know uh i didn't see it um hold on let me see i'll, I'll see what i can look it up uh Shooter, but, Lions, it's, it's cesar chavez Oh, it was called Cesar Chavez. It was just called Cesar Chavez. No wonder yeah. I forgot it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I can see he why plays, He plays Cesar Chavez to, in yeah. a movie called Cesar Chavez. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was good in that one. I liked That's it. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I can, you were overthinking it. That's yeah. fair. But, that, um, but he's also really good in, like, Hollywood garbage. He's, oh, yeah. He's in those Ant-Man movies. He's, he's, he's funny he's, in those He's Ant-Man one of the best movies. things about any yeah. MCU movie is when he gives a speech. He's wonderful. Hmm. Here's, here's what I... Again, I didn't see the movie. But I will say this. It sounds nice... To have, like, an underdog biopic that isn't overtly a, a celebration of corporate culture. Because we've had yeah. a lot of that this year. I, I suppose if, if you consider, like, NASA to be, like, the man, then there's part of that. I mean, yeah, oh, but uh, there's only so many ways to get into space. Yeah, I mean, you want to, you want to, you want to... You want to celebrate NASA or do you want to celebrate Tesla? I'll go with NASA. NASA, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. 
And, and, actually and in fact, to the moon. Good N- for NASA takes yeah. it on the chin a little bit because when he first gets in, uh, there's some early scenes when he get, like, gets his first job at NASA because he you know, has an engineering degree. He went yeah. to college. And he go walks into NASA and the secretary says, oh, mm. Latino man, here's your keys. And there's, here's the cleaning supply closet. Clearly mm-hmm. you're the janitor. He's like, and he takes the keys like, thanks. And he pockets the keys. <laughs> and that becomes a, a plot point later because he actually like ha- like realizes that they're doing something wrong with sort of like a rocket casing. Uh-huh. He's like, wait a minute, I need to sort of figure out sort of the thermal dynamics of this. Uh-huh. And he uses the keys to get into like the calculation rooms and he just starts doing all of the work. Okay, you know what? So, that's actually so kind that, of fun. That's, that's kind good, of a cute that's bit. Good storytelling, I love yeah. the way they shoot yeah. those NASA sequences because yeah. uh, like he's he's concerned, you know, be he wants to be welcomed into part of the team, but it's all these like square white guys. Yeah. So it's like, oh well here you can take some burritos to work with you. It's like, no, I'm not gonna be that guy. I'm gonna eat what the white guys eat. And they eat like bologna sandwiches on white bread. It's yeah. like I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there and there's like this weird shade of green that the director dresses all of like the NASA guys in. It's like mm. this is awful. Like yeah. it actually do, like NASA culture well, is actually taking it a bit out well, of the chin. That's good. Because it's a white and, men. It's and like it's not this, like yeah. hidden figures where like the big scene is where like the head of NASA beats up a no, machine. He, to, it's about to, Jose yeah. Hernandez. Good. Using yeah. his own smarts to like prove himself to these people. Good. Who, who aren't what? accepting him because he's Latino. Well, again, you know, like, like we're saying, sometimes the cliches work. Hmm. Sometimes, sometimes that kind of emotional manipulation is gets the point across yeah and that's okay when you're telling a story mm. that's supposed to be inspirational so yeah inspiration there's a formula to inspiring people so it, yeah, it's, it's effective it's, you can you can you can wince all you want but it works it's it's, it's formulaic yeah. but it's it's very uh and, you know jose hernandez mm. it's based on his book surely he signed off on every bit of this sure so it's very hero worshipy but he's a hero yeah. let's worship him for a little bit Let's appreciate, uh, you know, his his struggles. Let's appreciate his culture, and let's appreciate this corny ass movie yeah. uh, that that Hollywood kind of churned out and kind of get a little misty over the the, the cliches. All right. Well, tell me about uh, let's speaking of corporations and mm. stuff. Uh, Dumb Money, another biopic. A lot of biopics lately. Yeah. All right, tell me about Dumb uh, Money. I missed my chance to see this one. So okay. Um, Dumb Money uh, is is a biopic about. Like last year, like yeah, it's, it was it's only, not only a couple of years just ago. Yeah. happened. Yeah, and I think the big issue with dumb money is we don't have perspective on this yet. That's we just have a, a little bit of of I was a, a taste of, of what happened. That's the um, thing. Like people want to like jump onto current events because they're fresh in everyone's minds, and then you can tell a story about like ah, oh, yeah, I just heard about that. Let's go see the movie mm-hmm. about it. You don't fucking know. You, you don't, don't know, know the yeah, people. Yeah. You don't know what they're gonna make of themselves. And we've seen like weird example of this we did uh we have a podcast on our patreon called only the best we review every single film ever nominated for best picture and there was a biopic of marie curie who you know discovered radium hmm. uh and it was it was okay it was okay Greg yeah. garson and walter pigeon are in it they're wonderful like it, it hits all the biopic beats those were kind of solidified as early as then but it was pretty functional but here's the thing it was made before the nuclear bomb was was invented. Uh-huh. So the happy ending, where oh. we found out that radium has, is, can be like a treatment for cancer, and therefore, you know, Marie Curie's legacy is set and mostly happy, is a little lacking well, in no, context. No, 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 they actually gave you the context, because there's flash-forwards in that movie, no, if you're you think, recall. No, you're thinking of Rosamund Pike version. 
Oh, it's the other mirror. Oh, I'm talking right. about the one from the, the 40s. The Rosamund oh, Pike version is yeah. actually quite good as Sorry, well. I thought I like you were the, talking about the more recent one. No, no, there's the Rosamund Pike. Pike yeah. What was that called? Um, I think it was just called Radiation. Something like that. Yeah. I'll look that up in a second. Rosamund Pike was in a movie. It was directed by Marjan Satrapi, who yeah. is best known for uh, doing the, the graphic novel Persepolis, which is a autobiographical. Marjan Satrapi is an excellent filmmaker. See her horror comedy, The Voices. <laughs> it's one of my favorite horror movies of like the last 10 years. It's great. Um, but yeah, she did a very, very, very respectable biopic of Marie Curie. But I'm talking about the one from the 1940s, which was made before the bomb dropped. They didn't know that was going to happen. So the sort of happy it's ending to her life called, was... It was called Radioactive. Radioactive, very close. Yeah. yeah, Good good movie. Not amazing? Mm. Good. Um, that original Marie Curie epic was made too soon. Mm. We, they, didn't, they didn't know it was too soon, but they probably should have. Because yeah. she was still alive and kicking, or, or was around the time they were making the movie and boom weird so or another one remember the fifth estate yeah the bill yeah, condon um, movie about how fucking uh, great it was about uh, the, the... uh oh god the wikileaks guy julian assange mm-hmm. it was about how great julian assange was yeah <laughs> like at the end they're like well maybe he's not so great and i'm like if you made that movie now that would be an entirely be different, different film yeah. there is absolutely no way you could get away with the tone of that movie now mm. wait <laughs> wait a little bit okay, yeah so uh craig gillespie has yeah. come along and made a, a movie about the gamestop scandal from like yeah, yeah like a year and a half ago uh right. craig gillespie uh, a bit of a mixed bag filmmaker yeah. he did i Tanya, which i really really liked great movie great he did biopic. that remake of fright night which is a, a lot, lot of people like that more than me. A lot of people really um, like it. I think it kind of misses the point, but it's yeah, pretty he, good. And Colin Farrell's great in it. Yeah, he, he made um, a, a 1961 Fred McMurray movie in 2014 with John Hamm called Million Dollar Arm, which is uh, which is well made. That's that's another like cliche ridden yeah. but effective movie. Yeah, and and he did Cruella, which I hated. Um, oh, yeah, Cruella sucked. Oh, but by yeah. the way, Marie Curie uh, did die before that movie was made, but it was like less than ten years oh, before right. the movie was made. So just in case yeah, you're writing um, a letter. Stop. I got uh, it. D- Dumb Money is has a ridiculously stacked cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Dano plays Keith Gill, uh, who was just sort of a, a casual uh, stock enthusiast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, did funny internet videos. And he called himself Roaring Kitty. And he had, you know, mm-hmm. had a cat-themed word, obnoxious cat t-shirts. And he had his stock portfolio, like, public. Just yeah. posted it online. He's like, hey, you guys... There's this something something I know about called shorting in the stock market. We learned all yeah. about shorting from the movie The Big Short. Uh, the idea is uh, a really wealthy stock trader will essentially mm. bet that a business will fail. Yeah. And, and if it does, they get a bunch of stock and they get really, really rich, while everybody who owns the business gets nothing. Yeah. So uh, they saw this, this is kind of an unfair way to play, because only rich people can do that. Yeah. They're betting on you failing. They're not giving any money to the people who's, who are losing their uh, livelihoods. They're just sort of keeping a bunch of money. So he's like, hey, they've bet against this business GameStop. There's not a lot of history about GameStop given in the movie, unfortunately. We do see one game, one of the characters played by Anthony Ramos and his manager is played by Dane DeHaan uh, work in uh, a GameStop during lockdowns. They decided to stay open. So it's just an empty store. Mm -hmm. GameStop sells video games. GameStop sells video games. They also... 
are essentially a pawn shop because you sell your used video games to them. They would give you an incredibly shitty price. Like, let's say there's a new video game. They they give you five dollars and they sell it for fifty. No, it was it was insane. Like you would like this move. This video game just came out. I'm gonna resell it to you. I bought it for sixty. You gave me twenty, and when I come back the next day, you're reselling it for fifty-five. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. uh, unbelievable, but you know you you kind of a, you understand when you're going to a pawn shop. Yeah, it's a pawn shop. So yeah, yeah, yeah. if if you really need a lot of money, you don't go to GameStop. Uh, sure. if, if you want to buy something for cheap, you go to GameStop because they sold computer mouses. If you, no, if you want to buy something really expensive, you go to GameStop. Yeah. You go to an actual like mom and pop video game store to get a fair price. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, because they sold computer mouses, they were considered uh, a like a vital business during pandemic, so they stayed open. <laughs> Actually, that's some dialogue. Oh, that is um, a loophole, isn't it? But, uh, you know, people started downloading games. A lot of the technology was changing. Yeah. People started realizing what a, what a ripoff this store mm-hmm. was. So the, the business started to fail, and they were... Tr- and that was pre-pandemic as well. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was gradually on the decline. It was, it was already decline. on the decline, yeah. and yeah. it was going out of business. And, uh, and so, yeah, the, it was about to fail. But this guy, Keith Gill, said, wait a minute, this business is going to fail. What if we just bought all this cheap stock? I just like that. What if we all owned GameStop? And in fact, if we, if you and all of my YouTube uh, followers started to buy up stock in GameStop, the stock would go up, the business wouldn't fail, and these rich assholes who are trying to short it, the rich asshole is uh, played by Seth Rogen, he plays Gabe Plotkin, mm-hmm. uh, he'll go broke. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, he'll get his comeuppance. Th- this is this will all be great. We'll just put a lot of money into this stock. Not a lot for us. Uh, the stock price will go up if we trade out. We'll be rich, and that rich asshole will go broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this big montage of all of the people who are watching Keith Gill. Uh, we have, um, uh, oh gosh, um, uh-huh. Maha- hold on. You got it. Mahala Harold. Sorry, I was just looking mm-hmm. up the name of the actors. Uh, as a college student, uh, and Talia Ryder, also a college student. They play lovers, mm-hmm. and they're uh, college students who are getting to the stock, stock game for the first time. We see their story. We see America Ferrera. Hey. Who uh, plays a nurse who is also buying into all of this. We see a lot of these people who, who are kind of buying into it. We also get to see Keith Gill's family uh, oh. at this. Uh, Pete Davidson plays his brother. Shailene Woodley plays his wife. Clancy Brown plays his dad. Uh, and, then, and then we see sort of what's going on on the billionaire side of things. So Seth Rogen is the one who's betting that GameStop is going to fail. Whereas um, Nick Offerman plays Kenneth Griffin. Uh, who's sort of like the billionaire above him who ends up bailing him out when he starts losing money all of, yeah. of after all of this. The arc of it was a lot of people started buying up GameStop stock, GameStop stock through this app called Robinhood. Yeah. We get to know the, the, the owners of Robinhood. One of them is played by Sebastian Stan. Like I said, a lot of good actors in this. Yeah. And what happens when people actually mobilized and used the stock market the way it's supposed to be used, mm-hmm. because it's been a stacked deck for so long, yeah. that the billionaires started to panic a little bit. Uh, they panicked a lot. Yeah. So there was, and they actually like made Robinhood like, stop. Yeah, they, they just there, changed. They, they, like, they made a phone yeah. call to Robinhood. They said, you can't have people buying the stock anymore. Make them stop. And which, Robinhood actually did it. Which should, I don't know if that's illegal, but that should be illegal. 
That's the, just, yeah. yeah, that's the thing. It's not illegal. They could, they could just sort of monopoly, manipulate all this crap. It's just the worst fucking thing. I yeah. don't, uh. it's, it's designed for the rich. It's, yeah. you know, well, there's all these statistics. Like, yeah. the top 0.1% own, like, 70% of all the stock in the world. Yeah, and as soon, um, as, as, soon as that is actually turned against them by someone who's just using the rules against them, yeah. boom, all of a sudden the rules don't apply anymore. Fuck you. Um, God, fucking damn it. So it, it, that, that was a fun story when it was going on in the news. I remember it was yeah, interesting. Yeah. The, the, and the, that it was GameStop was a little bit whimsical because yeah. it's like this business nobody cares about anymore. And a, but and that the, everybody knows. And one that's destined uh, to die. Like I don't even mm. you, all you've done is delay the inevitable. Well, like the what, industry is not going to change. What they're doing is they're just using this dying company to make a lot of money, and the yeah. people were doing it instead. And wouldn't you know it, GameStop stock went way up. The yeah. value of the company was all of a sudden like they they were buying up stock at the initially for like eight dollars a share, and by the end of the movie, it's like three hundred and fifty a share. Yeah, like which is a huge difference. Um, that's an interesting story in real life. So they're just dramatizing all that. Uh, they're using a lot of montage, a lot of pop music from a year and a half ago. Uh, they, they open up with with uh, WAP is like uh, is on the soundtrack because that was the hit song like uh, last summer. I, I remember when when everything was wet ass, <laughs> wet and gushy was sure. was the radio edit, yes. which is kind of grosser, it's almost worse. <laughs> like what is? Mm. Yeah. Anyway. It's a fun song. It's, 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 song. Re- it's like really song. funny. It's, it's, it's tawdry, but it works. Yeah. It's great. To, to, yeah. Two lovely ladies singing about how much they like to get laid. Sure. I'll great. Listen. Good for and, you. And, very... it's, and it's kind of humorous. I'm yeah. very happy for you. Mm. Well done, indeed. And, uh, and yeah, like an outrageous song like that comes out, and then, like, assholes like Ben Shapiro just show their full asses when they <laughs> say, I, I don't understand this at all. Of course you don't, asshole. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are a chode. Uh, anyway I, I hope he's listening oh god please the, do not put us the, on that the pro- radar, and, and it's it's told with you know uh, a, a certain degree of humor and lightness there's you know like i said a lot of montages a lot of pop music uh all of the actors are bringing it and they're all sort of bringing uh you know sort of a, 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 a humorous quality to all of their characters so it's a comedy yeah uh but the problem is we don't really have perspective on this yeah what did this mean it, it didn't you know there, there's all those chirons at the end this is what this story meant well not really not enough time has passed yeah <coughs> bless you not enough time has passed to see some any sort of like effective change in the world because of this yeah it this, might this it might have affected no change whatsoever it yeah. might just be a blip that's like uh, um, what they said at the end is uh now those billionaires are gonna think twice no, uh the title dumb money comes from stock slang uh because most stock is owned by corporations and it's corporations buying pieces of other corporations, individual investors, uh, the people who are just sort of investing in stock and hoping to get little payouts, they're called dumb money. They're the ones who are actually kind of like fueling this machine from the bottom up when they themselves are not going to get the big rewards. Yeah. Uh, And there actually are clips from Wolf of Wall Street played throughout this movie, especially that Matthew McConaughey scene. Yeah. And yeah, so the, the, the point the movie is trying to make, and not effectively, is that uh, those billionaires are going to think twice now. N- no. Probably not. It no. seems to me like we've just gone back to status quo. Nobody was like, really punished. Yeah. The Seth Rogen character... Um, yeah, that guy. Di- did, like the one who actually was betting against GameStop. They, they screwed over him. 
That one. All right, well. So there's one less billionaire. Good. Good. All right, fine. Anyway. Gabe Blotkin is his name. But yeah, there there were congressional subpoenas. Um, Basically, uh, they exposed exposed uh, an exploit in the system. And they're they're going to make sure that that can't be exploited again. That's probably yeah, they, all there is to it. This takes place like in the middle of lockdowns. There's a little bit of sort of commentary as to what we're going through during the pandemic, but it's almost backdrop at this point, which is a weird thing to it's ponder so because it happened less than two years ago. The the, uh, the way that like the entertainment industry has like sort of banded together to pretend that year and a half or mm-hmm. so when everyone was like completely locked down, like we're still not out of it, but like the world changed dramatically for like a year and a half. And like, you know, we talked about getting back to normal. We were nowhere close for a really long time. People just don't, people just don't make movies about that. Yeah. Like it's weird when they do, like it happens, but it's weird. There have been a few good lockdown movies. Uh, Some were even made during the lockdown. I'm very fond of host. uh, Oh yeah. That's a great lockdown movie. Glass Onion was a lockdown movie. Glass Onion was a good lockdown movie. Um, There was a Romanian film I saw called Bad Luck Banging, or it's called Looney, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn was the title of the movie. And um, yeah, that that had like a lot of sort of drama about masks and lockdowns and being cautious about COVID and just how incautious everybody was. Yeah. Um, this movie is like, yeah, try, trying to, it's so unusual to see this, something that happened. I remember from like a little while ago being treated as like a, a dramatic thing from the long ago past. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a sign of how our memories are shortening. How history is moving so quickly, we're having trouble keeping up. No, I that we're making biopics of something that happened eighteen months ago. That's definitely, I think, part of it. But I just think it's. I mean, funny they they used weird. to do that with TV movies. This yeah. is a theatrical feature. TV like movies used stars. to crank shit out. Like, oh, did Joey Buttafuoco end up in the mm. news? Within four months, you'd have a TV movie. Yeah. Like you, before the end of the calendar year, you would have a cheap ass mm. TV movie, but maybe more than one about mm. whatever was salacious and in the news at the time. And it was no one respected those movies. Hmm. Those were the tabloid. Those are the weekly world news of TV of movies. <laughs> they were just junk and trash, and they were th- thrown out. There. Occasionally, they'd be a good one. Don't get me no wrong. No one will like, save you as the weekly world news of movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, more biopics. Jesus, you know, hmm. Oscar season is coming because the the biopics just started filling the theaters or filling the streamers. Uh-huh. Uh, the this one's a kind of unusual one though. Uh, this is uh, directed by Pablo Lorraine. Pablo Lorraine mm. has done quite a few. Uh, I like Pablo. I've seen like, a couple of Pablo. R- I've Lorraine seen some of his movies as well. He's made, he's made some very good. He did that very good. Um, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis biopic mm. Jackie, uh, starring Natalie Portman. That movie's great. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I really loved uh, the biopic he did of Princess Diana called Spencer, mm. which is a good lead into this movie because Spencer uh, was essentially about. Like the last week or a few days uh, before Princess Diana decided she's she'd had enough and she was going to leave the royal family, and it was all about how being in the royal family, a family with this much history, this much tradition that's so set in its ways, uh, was essentially like living in a haunted house. You're just surrounded by ghosts who are demanding that you be just like them. Yeah, uh, and it's very effective. You know, it's it's unusual, and it's actually, you know, you'd argue it's not necessarily very realistic, but I think that movie captures a certain emotional honesty of what that probably would have felt like. Uh, and I love that movie pieces. His his latest biopic is going 
taking that and like multiplying it by 20. Uh, it is a film about Augusto Pinochet. Uh, Augusto Pinochet was a Chilean uh, uh, dictator. Dictator. Yeah. Uh, huge asshole. I'm just, and that's just going to put it real mildly. Just, just, just. He was a dictator. He was a dictator. There were deaths and corruption. And just look him up. Huge asshole. I, I think people know Pinochet. <laughs> I hope so. But I'm just saying. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna. Whatever. Um, according to Pablo Lorraine, died, died in 2006 and good riddance. But yeah. Um, according to Pablo Lorraine, so it's all, and also which is noteworthy as well because that's only like 17 years ago, uh, hmm. and yeah, I think it was posed before that. But like he he, the 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 wounds still feel fresh. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. So he, he was arrested for like human rights violations. Oh yeah, he's a monster. Like, yeah. He's a monster. Um, according to Pablo Lorraine's movie El Conda, aka The Count, uh, he was also a vampire. I buy it. This isn't like oh he was kind of like a vampire. Like Spencer is like kind of like a like no, literally a vampire. He was a vampire. He was in like a he was like a French soldier in the 18th century who like oh God. stole Marie Antoinette's <laughs> head after it was like decapitated. Like he just had all of these horrible uh, uh, and misadventures until finally he wound up uh, running Chile, and then uh, in, he got so like tired of it and so like overwhelmed by all the bullshit that he decided to fake his own death and now he is living in the middle of nowhere uh with his wife and with his butler uh just being a vampire being old and tired and he has decided that he's just gonna stop drinking blood he's just gonna die he's nothing less for him in this world anymore he shot his shot he's miserable Pinochet lived lived into his 90s by the way um he hates his kids. He's got all these kids and they're like right out of succession or some bullshit where all they care about is his money. He hasn't made any of them a vampire. He hasn't made his wife a vampire. He's just shitty and alone. The movie. Uh, that's like the movie. That's my way. That's, that's right. the shitty and alone the movie. Uh, it's shot in this very pretty black and white. Sounds There's like a, a subplot. Like Sorrentino kind of a movie. It kind of like, does have us, that yeah. kind of like elaborate sort of almost gauche prettiness to the presentation uh-huh. even though what's actually happening is like really like there's a lot of absurdity like uh the, the, he doesn't just drink blood he like rips out someone's heart and like puts it in a blender and drinks it like the whole heart <laughs> which is kind of funny and if you think about it, it's gross but it's kind of funny uh it, it doesn't really come across terribly funny to me there's a whole subplot about how um the church uh has found out that like He's still out there, and uh, he they're looking for an accountant to put all of his corrupt financial affairs in order. And they're going to send a sleeper agent, a nun, to go into the family, uncover all of their missing money. They'll take it for the, for the church, uh, and uh, surely this woman will be incorruptible, except who can resist the siren song... Of Augusto Pinochet. Because over the course of it, you start thinking that, oh wait, this might not be an act. She might actually be into this guy. And will she be corrupted? Will she become a vampire? Will everyone become a vampire? Will all the vampires, like, kill each other at the end? 
Um, there's a twist in this movie. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But there's a thing that happens in this movie that is clearly supposed to be a surprise. And I literally thought to myself, like 10, 15 minutes before that happened, you know what would be the stupidest thing that could possibly happen in this movie? Uh-oh. Is if this happens. And then 15 minutes later, it did. And I was like, no! Is it effective? No. Stu- stu- it's actually, stu- stupid it, is one thing. No, no, no. Right? It's, it's actually like kind of insulting. There's this weird... I, it's hard for me to judge this movie because obviously this is made by a Chilean filmmaker and it's mm. about something that's very, very close to them. And like I, I, I can't judge what it's like it, this would be like if like watch someone from like a completely different country watch some kind of like biopic of donald trump where he was a wolf man you know and it's sort of yeah. like how do you how do you really gauge that from outside of that perspective i can't i just can't i'm not going to pretend that i can i cannot judge it on those terms uh all i can do is look at it from the outside looking in um i find the metaphor that this fascist is a vampire to be on the nose and frankly it doesn't add much it's mm. pretty obvious like it's just basically hey, these evils who's a vampire i'm like oh okay mm. are we doing something with that no not really oh okay mm. so they're just going after his money yeah they're going after his money and some of them want to be a vampire oh will some of them be a vampire i don't know maybe <laughs> okay uh is it, it well, you it, know what maybe it, 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 if you're telling the story of a dictator yeah. and you're positing that he's a vampire, yeah. eventually you're going to have to get down to the fact that evil assholes are really boring and tacky. Yeah, yeah, I, I give you that. However, I would argue that that point is drawn out. Okay. I think that the ultimate, the, the overall general purpose of the metaphor and the way that that metaphor eventually allows for certain plot elements that wouldn't be possible in a traditional biopic... Mm are frankly tacky and reductive mm. uh and i find that annoying i'm sure that there is a there is a definite undercurrent of this movie that would be a lot stronger if i were more intimately aware mm. with what it was like to live under augusta pinochet mm. well, I, obviously i don't uh, uh but from the outside looking in i find it um a, a, a sort of annoyingly like we we've come up with the premise and we're going to let that ride mm-hmm. and then it's just going to be like a not very perceptive Wes Anderson movie in its presentation uh-huh. in terms of just quirkiness and people looking right at the camera and well, it just doesn't feel like it doesn't it doesn't actually have the insight that comes from that right. well I, I wish I had seen this movie I do wish you because I, um, I, I begged you uh, obviously I've, I understand I've, I've seen seven you saw seven movies. Movies. I'm not uh, mad I just but, wish uh, you had so we can have a more interesting conversation about I had, this one I can recommend uh, though uh, a Chilean filmmaker named Patricio Guzman mm. who uh, makes documentaries and he did these uh, wonderful trio of documentaries I saw they're on Ovid by the way um, uh, which I watched with B. Peterson um, mm-hmm. There, he uh, he did one called Nostalgia for the Light. He did one called The Pearl Button. And he did mm-hmm. The Cordillera of Dreams in 2019. You might have remembered that one because it was really acclaimed. Yeah. And those are all about uh, sort of his, Patricio Guzman's relationship with the Pinochet dictatorship. Yeah. And how he had to sort of, he had to flee Chile and sort of reestablish a relationship with his home country and its relationship with artists and all of the, the sort of pain that Pinochet wrought in these grand echoes that just sort of stretched across, even into the very, like, literal landscape of the country. Yeah. Um, 
so you know, like watch those. You might get a little bit of insight mm-hmm. from from an actual Chilean filmmaker. Well, and Paolo is Chilean as well. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, but, but th- this is a documentary. Yeah, yeah, actually talking directly about you know Pinochet and the, the actual real experiences of living under Pinochet or having yeah. to flee Pinochet. Uh, so yeah, um, I can't talk about El Conde. I haven't seen no. it. Yeah, but um, yeah, see Nostalgia for Light. See the Pearl yeah. Button. See the Cordillera of Dreams. Those are great. Yeah. I know some people really really like this movie, and I will. Uh, Totally, you know, I, I'm not going to defend my position on it terribly hard. Mm-hmm. I thought not. I thought a lot more could be done with it, and I thought some of the attempts to incorporate like vampirism into it weren't funny so much as they were laughable. And I think mm-hmm. that was a miss. I think that was a misstep. But again, this might require more expertise than I can offer. So I will yeah. yield the floor. Uh, we have one more movie to review. I got a linking material because yes. this is also by a Chilean filmmaker. Nice! <laughs> wow, that worked out. Yeah, I got, um, uh, you know what? It's actually we're recording this during um, uh, Latino Heritage Month, uh, mm. so or, or it's uh, it's called Hispanic Heritage Month, um, mm. and so it's it's nice that we have so many Latino filmmakers and mm-hmm. stars in uh, this week's uh, episode. Although Hispanic and Latino aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah, it, yeah. Why I corrected myself. It's just Hispanic Heritage Month, mm-hmm. but this is by uh, a film by Sebastian Silva. Sebastian Silva, uh, he's in a few films I've seen. He did one uh, in sort of the mid 2010s called Crystal Fairy and the Magical Cactus, which mm-hmm. had Michael Sarah and Gabby Hoffman. I remember that coming um, out. I didn't see it. Yeah. Yeah, and and that one's pretty good uh, about sort of sort of flipping uh, that sort of manic pixie dream girl on on its ear. He. Uh, so, uh, Sebastian Silva is a very kind of naturalistic filmmaker. Yeah. Who, uh, what, you're wincing? Oh, nothing. No, 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 oh, right. It's fine. The cat said something silly behind you. It's fine. Oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I thought, thought I'd misspoken. No, 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 no. The cat said something silly. No. Uh, he tends to tell these sort of stories about where the stories are told in these little kind of social awkward moments mm-hmm. rather than these big kind of story-based uh, beats. Yeah. So uh, by, by the time you sort of get to the end, you realize that you've been taken on these like really harrowing journeys just through a single person's experience mm-hmm. rather than through a, a, a big plot or a story. He did one in 2018 that I really liked called Tyrell, uh, which was a, a, a... Please tell me that was a biopic of Susan Tyrell. I wish. Oh, no, no. Cool. Um, no, it's actually a, was a, a film very much about a, a racial panic. Okay. You know, about um, a, a young black man who goes to a party with a, a bunch of white guys and they all sing R.E.M. and he just he feels like completely <laughs> out of place and he begins to pick up on a lot of microaggressions, like racist yeah. microaggressions. Um, this new one is called Rotting in the Sun. Sebastian Silva plays himself. Huh. Uh, or rather, he plays a really suicidally depressed version of himself. Hmm. And he plays a filmmaker who can't get funding for his movies. And he's really put out by that. He is online too much. There's a lot of scenes of him just sort of bumming around on his phone and talking about how, like, Instagram influencers are now sort of like the more celebrated artists than actual artists. Uh, and, like, he tries to pitch a story uh, to some studios at one point in this movie through, like, a Zoom call. And he's just like, yeah, and here's my story. And he's kind of, like, ha- half-hearted about it because he doesn't feel much passion about anything anymore. And nobody's responding. Yeah, we've seen that kind of story before. Well, it would also star this one Instagram influencer. And they're like, oh, they've, like, really brightened up. Oh, that's really yeah. great. Um, 
and so yeah that just sort of uh puts him off the way he spends his days is he goes down to these beaches mm. where sex is just happening mm. so he's a gay man there's a bunch of gay men on this beach clothing optional beaches a lot of full frontal male nudity you want to see dicks there's dicks everywhere and they're in action there's unsimulated sex in this movie wow people just you know boning on the beach having threesomes right there on the beach on camera good for them but it's presented in a very matter-of-fact way like this is just something that happens around him and sebastian silva is not really interested or he's kind of is um and he meets a young man named jordan firstman who is also playing himself he's an actual social media influencer i didn't recognize him because i don't yeah i'm I'm 45 (laughs) But uh, yeah, they they begin to have like a little bit of a something like a tempestuous relationship uh, where uh, they kind of come to blows over. And again, this is like a little bit more of the emotional journey that I was talking about where they kind of resent each other as artists, but they don't come out and say that kind of thing. That's not what their Mm -hmm. conversations are about. Um, And there's also a a supporting character in this uh, named Vero, who's played by Catalina Saavedra who is in some of other, uh, uh, Sebastian Silva's other movies. Yeah. And that's all I can really describe for now, but I will say that the, the focus does change in the movie. Mm. There's some big plot twists and, um, and the Sebastian Silva, Silva characters sits it out. Okay. And it becomes a little bit more about the Jordan Firstman character. Mm. Who is a vampire. He's not a vampire. But, uh, like, he, he learned he, he learned something, and he has to, like, start, like, figuring out what the truth of that matter was. Okay. So it becomes kind of like an investigation story. He starts, like, asking around questions. And then, after a while, he starts to fall aside. And there's a part where he sits the movie out, and it becomes about uh, the Catalina Saavedra character. And it happens so naturally. The first uh, I- event is unmistakable. Like, the, what's going to happen, sort of, in terms of the plot twist. Uh, but then it like gradually starts to shift focus and it's almost, it's like uh, this whimsical neo-noir after a while. Like Mm -hmm. it started out as this really kind of depressive thing about a suffering artist. Then it becomes this kind of noirish detective story. And then it becomes this really like harrowing character piece. Um, and the way it moves is pretty brilliant. Actually. Mm. Uh, I loved how, how it so easily slid from being raw into being intense and almost pulpy into being like intensely tragic and almost silly at the same time. Hmm. It is this weird merry-go-round of bizarre tones that locks together in a way that you wouldn't expect. That was great. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And the title is uh, quite literal. There's, there's actually something that rots in the sun. Oh, okay. Uh, So there, there is actually rotting going on in this movie. No vampires. Damn it. No vampires. Okay. But one expendable. Uh, raw, <laughs> raw, queer, whimsy noir. That sounds really is, good. Is rotting in the sun. I, I, I just, and I, because and I, I'm loopy and I'm tired, but that's And, and, I, that and I just really dug good. it because it, it kept, keeps you a little bit off balance. And it's also okay. very realistic and grounded, but also a little bit artificial at the same time. Because these are people clearly playing fictionalized versions of themselves. Uh, I dug the heck out of it. I really liked Rotting the Sun. All right. Well, that's it for our main movie reviews. Uh, it is time to go over the films that we reviewed and, a, and, a, and, and give them a rating. 
Just people per, perk like up, dude. that. Come on. People we're, we're like us the, to give movies. We're reviews. at the end here. We're giving. Oh uh, God, crashing out. Okay, fine. All right. All right. So here's how we do. We we uh, we we rate movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh, so that we will never be quoted on a poster. Uh, a C plus is the highest rating we can give. That is above average. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are movies we genuinely recommend. Maybe they're amazing. Maybe we just think they're pretty cool. But we genuinely recommend them. We hope you see them. Uh, a C is average. That's a you know mixed bag, more for one audience than another kind of thing. Uh, is a C. It's average. What do you what do you want from me? And then C minus is below average. Those are movies that we think uh, are are not particularly good. Uh, maybe we think they're just shit, uh, <laughs> and uh, we don't necessarily think you should see them. But you know, it's your call. It's up to you. Maybe we'll differ. Uh, mm. On that note, uh, Whitney, rotting well, good, in good, this good committal, like I don't know, film it's critic opinion there. So tired. Here, here's my definitive opinion on this. Yeah, do what you want. Yeah, well, th- I'm not, I can't tell you how to live yeah, your life. I'll just tell you see if the I think movies. It sucks yeah, or not. Re- really see the movies you want. Anyway, uh, rotting in the sun. Rotting in the sun is a C plus. I really like rotting in the sun. That's great. Uh, Elconda, um, I'm gonna give it a C minus, but I know I might be in the in in like I might not be in the majority on that one. All right. So, uh, but for me, it it didn't really work. It didn't. I didn't find it very illuminating. I found it very reductive, and frankly, I didn't think it was very funny. And I think it made some big swings that didn't land. Uh, so bummer. Uh, dumb money. Dumb money is a C. Ah. Uh, make make this movie in like five years. Mm-hmm. Give a little bit of time, At least a little, where we can yeah. figure out what's going on. And if nothing happened, then it was just something that happened. It was just yeah. a little blip. And that can be a movie too. But yeah. you know, at least you'll know. Uh, a million miles away. Uh, heaven help me. See, it's a C plus. Good. It, it's fine. It, it it got me. Yeah. It, it's corny, but it got me. There you go. All right, uh, Cassandro. Hmm. Um, I'm torn on this one because I, I didn't really love it. But ultimately, I do think it's so it's so well acted, especially from Gal Garcia Bernal. And it is so illuminating uh, that even though I think there are some issues with the presentation, I can't help but recommend it. So we're giving it a low C+. All right. I'm just going to give it a C because yeah. uh, because it's a little too straightforward. Yeah. Um, I, I think you would get uh, a lot, just as much, from like reading an article or a, a reading a biography about uh, Cassandra than seeing this movie, but you won't get Gal Garcia Canal's performance. Well, so that's that's, that's true. Fair. All right, uh, no one will save you. Uh, I I like no one will save you a lot. It might be one of my favorites of the year. I'm giving it a C plus, of course. Yeah, I'm uh, giving it a big old C plus as well. R- really solid and scary, creepy sci-fi picture. Yeah, this is this is the kind of it. We get a lot of like uh, ambitious, uh, narratively striking. Uh, horror movies, but it's it's really interesting to see one that is actually made with this kind of like studio class. Like this is the kind of distinctive horror filmmaking that a movie studio like 20th Century would usually sand the edges off of, yeah, and make more generic. So it's really impressive that this came out like at all. Uh, and uh, yeah, I I really love it to pieces. It's an excellently made film. Uh, and again, one of my favorite endings of the year. Uh, Expend four bowls sucks. It's very very bad, <laughs> and I don't recommend it. It's a C minus. It's a, it's it's a big old C minus. This movie yeah. is and, pretty. It's stu- you, you, it is you, stupid and terrible. You lowered the bar for the Expendables. How did you do a, that? Aggressively fatuous yeah. film. Uh, and then a haunting in Venice. Uh, C plus. Yeah. I I like a haunting in Venice. Yeah, C plus it, as well. I yeah, think it's just a. a 
what it might lack in story, it makes up for in style. I think the story works. It's fine. I, I just I I like to be like an active participant in whodunits. Mm. So you know, sometimes I get on the movie's wavelength, and I'm right, and then it, I can't be a little disappointed that I wasn't like you didn't you didn't, you didn't win way, you didn't yeah. win this this battle of wits, you know that kind of thing. But when all said and done, after you know the ending, what matters is the story and the characters. The story is solid. The characters are great. The acting is really really great. And, and really, the, the big winner here is the atmosphere and the cinematography. This mm-hmm. is Kenneth Branagh stretching that in a way we haven't seen him do in a long time. Excellently crafted film. I liked it a lot. Uh, next time on Critically Acclaimed, we'll be back with a review of Saw 10. Saw 10. Yes. Uh, it's a Saw X, so I'm just going to call it Socks. 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 Uh, and other films as well. Try and mm-hmm. stop us. Uh, but uh, we will be uh, we'll be doing that next next time on Critical Indeed. Acclaim. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to listen to uh, this podcast and all of our future podcasts uh, ad free, you can head over to our Patreon page. Even one dollar a month, you get the you get the podcasts ad free. But at later tiers, you get some of the exclusive shows that we talked about in this episode, like our commentary track for Lord of Illusions, like. Are all of our Oscar uh, reviews and only the best reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture? Uh, we've got b- huge back catalogs as well of exclusive shows about Star Trek, the Adam West Batman, Firefly, all kinds of things. Uh, huge shout out to our patrons. Without you, our shows would not exist. Our careers would be in, in non-existent. We just love you and we appreciate your support. Thank you. And if you can't afford to support the show. Uh, as a patron, there's other things you can do. Please leave us a review wherever you find us. You just take 30 seconds out of your day and write a sentence. It really, really helps a lot. Uh, you can also follow us on the social medias. We are at Critic Acclaim on uh, Twitter and Blue Sky. Uh, and I am at William Bibiani on all the social medias. Same. I'm a, uh, same on all, all the socials. I'm on instagrams and yeah. blue skies and I, yeah. I, I still have a twitter account but i don't check it as much as i used to yeah uh he's at whitney side by the way in case you. you're uh, curious about that and um yeah i guess that's uh that's about it for now so thank you everybody have a wonderful week and never forget everyone's a critic i don't know why i said it like that silly mood, never doing that again i want to go to the midnight show I'm sorry, what?